Find your next fall adventure in Fairfax County at the National Museum of United States Army. Take a turn on the tank simulator. Feel your seat rumble in their 300-degree theater. Then step outside to enjoy the fall colors from their outdoor dining area and rooftop Medal of Honor garden. Discover your fall adventure at the National Army Museum. Open seven days a week. Free admission and parking right off I-95. Get free tickets at usarmymuseum.org. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Fat Minute. I am your co-host, BVJ. I'm joined tonight with my co-host, Don John. We got a hot and bubbling episode for you tonight. <laughs> that, that's a very irrelevant joke that is in no way a reference to anything that has happened tonight. Anyway, um, <laughs> we're, we're joined again by special guests, uh, Trevor. Hello. And Michael. Fat minute. We should change it to the brown minute. You should have said brat minute. Holy Christ. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Enough, 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 enough. Yes, Dad. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, so tonight we are doing part two of two of the planned um, legacy sequel uh, episodes. Um, I think tonight we will all be able, or at least the majority of us will be able to carry a very different tone than we did in the first episode. Um, <laughs> well, let's just say it. I, I, we're, we're, we're talking about movies that we actually like much more. Um, so, <laughs> so uh, the first movie tonight is um, Mad Max Fury Road, uh, 2015, George Miller, who did the first two Mad Max movies. And Michael, correct me on this statement if I'm wrong, but he did some segments of Thunderdome, uh, I think he made most of that movie, yeah. Okay, okay. If not all of it, I thought he did. Oh, okay. Wait, maybe I'm thinking of somebody else where I heard that, like, he had a personal friend that passed away and that, like, he had to step away for part of the project, but he was able to do, like, some key action sequences in Thunderdome. But I, I don't know. I could just be misremembering. Um, maybe a cinematographer or something. Yeah. Or second unit director, maybe. True, yeah. true. This may be the film tonight that I have the least to say on, and I think that's also because it is the film that I love the least. I don't feel as strongly or passionately about. Um, I think it's a cool movie. I definitely like it more now than I did when I first saw it in theaters. Um, I think it was a little overhyped when, when it came out opening weekend. Um, I, I think the best review anyone ever gave Fury Road was when I took my dad to see it. <laughs> it was his first time, my second time, and it just ended. And it plays this, this big triumphant music, you know, um, by Junkie XL, almost worthy of like a Charlton Heston movie. And it just closes out. And my dad just turns to me and says, wow, what a plot. And just gets up and walks away. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think... I, as far as an action movies, as far as you know, action movies go, I think it's excellent. I think its stunt work is terrific. I think it is like one of the main exhibits of why there really needs to be an Academy Award for stunt work. And the fact that there still isn't is very disrespectful and messed up. Um, yeah. But you know, I it, it could use a little more story. It could use a little more context uh exposition even um but i guess like there is a beauty in its 
vagueness, I guess you could say, not not just subtlety, but almost vagueness. I mean, like you see these people, you you watch them do stuff, but you feel like you never really get to know them enough. Um, so I, I don't want to I don't want to drag on too long. And plus, you know, like I've said before, a lot of my best comments come in response to what others say. Um, Michael, you were actually the first person I talked to as soon as we walked out of the theater for this, and you were like, "What'd you think, Blake?" And I'm like, "I I liked it. What'd you think?" And you're like. I don't think it was as good as what everybody else was saying. And this was actually the one movie you were able to revisit this weekend. So you go ahead first. Um, so I kind of, for the longest time, I was kind of the opposite end of the Mad Max spectrum, I guess. I had watched, the, the funny thing is, I've never watched Beyond Thunderdome. I've never sat down and watched the first Mad Max, like just Mad Max all the way through. I've probably seen like 80% of it. A lot of times it was either just get interrupted or I remember one time I sat down to watch it and I fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> Great endorsement. Because I mean, I, I will say like the first Mad Max, I mean, it is, it's an old movie and it's it was an indie. It was a movie like made with just a few thousand dollars. It's a very slow movie. Yeah. Um, it's not like any of the other ones. Um, it's very much just at its core like a revenge story, and that's what it is. And then the only one that I've watched all the way through besides Fury Road is The Road Warrior. And The Road Warrior, I had always seen parts of it a lot because of my dad, because my dad is a big fan of The Road Warrior. He always like talked about it to me. Um, and you can just tell by like movies since the 80s like so many movies have like ripped off or been inspired by the road warrior like the that was a huge inspiration for like sci-fi and then action movies and especially video games um but um it just i don't know i just i had this this the experience i had with fury road was the same experience i had with guardians of the galaxy when i saw guardians of the galaxy in the theaters just like fury road Everybody was talking. I mean, everybody like people that like, like weren't into those type of movies. Like there was like, you know, people that weren't superhero fans or sci-fi fans were talking about Guardians of the Galaxy. Like, yeah. you know, like teeny, I mean, not to stereotype or sound sexist or anything, but like teeny bopper girls like were talking about Groot and like three months before that, like they never even heard of Groot. Like months before that, a lot of comic book fans had never even heard of Groot. Yeah, it was just one of those things. It's like people like came out of the woodwork loving Mad Max, but they had probably never even watched the old movies. Mm -hmm. And I just, I don't know. I don't know if it's just me being kind of hipster. Like when I watched it, I just, I kind of went in with my expectations down because, you know, people were just talking it up, and I'm just kind of like, yeah, whatever. And I will say that Mad Max Fury Road is very similar to The Road Warrior mm. because there isn't much plot. And I'm not saying, and look, in hindsight, that's not a bad thing. It focuses on the action. It kind of just has this basic setup where The Road yeah. Warrior was bad guys are attacking these people because they need oil in a post-apocalyptic world and Mad Max right. gets involved. He's right. kind of like just the... He's the he's the wandering gunman that kind of like almost like a western that like shows up and has to help. It's the same thing with Fury Road. 
a group of or yeah, a group of people are trying to escape like a bad guy in a, like a basically just a two hour long highway chase and Mad Max is along for the ride. It's they're very much the same movie. But this one is kind of like with new technology and a bigger budget. Yeah. Um and I just I don't know. I was just like I was like this, this movie doesn't have a plot and I was like people love this movie too much like they're they're just putting it on this giant pedestal and i don't know i just i had to get away from it like and i hadn't watched it since i saw it in the theaters like i hadn't watched this movie until today mm-hmm. and so, in, in like nine, years yeah yeah it's like almost six years and now that i rewatched it i i do like it a lot more than when i first saw it i mm. think I think it is very commendable, like for its its action and cinematography. Like it's it's a beautiful movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I I I give George Miller praise because you know they got the original director back to do it, and he didn't. It only had CGI when it needed it, like yeah. with the like with the sandstorms and stuff like that, like or the I giant th- waterfalls or whatever. Like it's too. I think I, uh, I I think I read a statistic about. About, it was either seventy-five or eighty percent of the movie was done with practical effects. Yeah, yeah. Like they only use CG on what they absolutely had to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like in most of this movie is just cars and stuff driving. So, and a lot of that is mm-hmm. real. Like people, like they said, like the people on those like, uh, like bungee poles that kind of go back and forth. The bungee like guitar was, man. Yeah, it's like that was all real. And and also keep in mind that like I, I I read another statistic about that where a lot of the a lot of the a, a good chunk of the CGI that they did spend money on wasn't just to add or create it was to subtract like they were taking away wires and cranes and like they were taking yeah. away like background stuff which mm-hmm. I think that kind of CGI is actually a little more impressive to like almost you don't even notice that there is supposed to be something there, but it's not there. Yeah. Kind of well, like, I mean the, uh, the night scenes were filmed in day from what I understand. And they, they just put that like, like blue filter over it. Well, they manipulated it and like overexposed it to give it like a unique look. Huh. Yeah. And that was so, the other thing, like yeah. the color, the color really pops like the daytime, like everything's mm-hmm. that kind of yellowish orange and the nighttime is like a really like Royal blue. Yeah. It's yeah. a very it's a very pretty movie. That's yeah. a, that's you well, gotta, yeah. I think it's like George Miller said like he didn't want it to look like any other big budget action movie like within the last however many years. That was actually in reference to his I don't know if it was the cinematographer and the editor but I think it was the editor his um his editor for this movie was a woman. And he specifically wanted a woman. They said, well, why is that? He goes, well, every other action movie I can think of, it was edited by a man. And I don't want this action movie to look like every other action movie ever made. Well, it goes a step further than that. Do you know who the editor was? No. His wife. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) And And I believe she won an award for it. I think think it won won Best Editing. It won four Oscars. I know that. Oh, it yeah. was nominated for ten. My bad, or something like yeah. that. Yeah, but it, I, I think I think it one of them was best editing. I, I'm pretty sure all four Oscars at one were all technical ones. Yeah, mm. but um, a funny thing, I, I don't know. I guess I kind of 
when I was watching in the movie theater, I, I don't know if it's just because it's been a long time since I saw it. I mm-hmm. forgot a lot of stuff. Like, I kind of, I remember watching the movie in theaters and thinking, like, why did they capture Mad Max? Like, why did he strap him to the front of a car? Like, why are they bringing this dude? And I totally <laughs> forgot, like, rewatching this movie. They, like, when they tattoo, when they capture him, they tattoo his back, like, He's like a universal blood donor because he has like typo mm. negative blood. I do like how like, the, the first thing they do when they capture him is give him a shave and a haircut. Yeah. They, they, they <laughs> groom his ass down because, you know, hygiene is important with that group. <laughs> Tattooing his whole fucking back, that's okay. But when they were about to brand him, oh, you're, you're going a bit too far. Now I'm going to break out. Yeah, but it's like I, I totally forgot that like Nicholas Holt like needed him like because there's yeah. this whole thing with the war boys that like they say they have a half life. So I guess they're like dying of some disease like they kind of have some they have like boils on their body and like mm. he like literally while he's driving like Mad Max is strapped to the front of his car and like he has an IV like running in between like his chain. It's like going mm. to Nicholas Holt. So yeah. I thought that was, that was kind of interesting. Um. But yeah, and one of the things this movie succeeds in rewatching it, this world feels lived in. Like this isn't this isn't I'll give this movie this is not style over substance. There is substance here. When yeah. you look when you look at these people and you look at the world and like listen to the dialogue, I think this movie really benefits watching it in subtitles and like catching what they say. Yeah. It the, the world feels lived in like the whole like culture of the war boys. Like they kind of live in this or they believe in this warped ideology of like Norse mythology yeah. mixed mixed with worshiping cars. Cause they like chant like V eight. And it's like, that's a type of engine. And they talk about dying honorably and going to Valhalla. And like, that's Norse mythology. And yeah. then like before they die, like they spray some kind of Chrome stuff. I'm not sure what it is, but it like gets you high. So you can like die a good death. And yeah, it, it's interesting. Yeah. It's very interesting. Um, and I think for an action movie like Charlize Theron and Tom Hardy, like they both put in really good performances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, Tom Hardy is good in everything, isn't? Charlize Theron is a really good actress. I mean, she's an Oscar-winning actress. Um, the funny thing is, a lot of a lot of people say, and like I agree with it too. Like Furiosa is very much the hero of this movie. Mad Max yeah. is just kind of along for the ride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would. That that was like the universal consensus that I would agree with as well. And um, I mean, so much so she's she's getting her own prequel movie now with um, Anya Taylor Joy, which I'm okay with that. But yeah, me too. Any any final thoughts though uh, on that, Mike? Um, I just I I think it's a second viewing. It's a lot better than I originally thought it was. I really kind of like crapped on this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, like. I mean, if I had to give it a rating, I would, for just a cinematic standpoint, I would say it's an A. I mean, yeah, it has a simple plot, but just all the technical aspects that goes in this movie, like, gives it an A. Like, when so many movies just look so fake and lazy nowadays, like, yeah. This movie is a piece of art compared to a lot of other movies. That's fair. Um, Trevor. Yes. <laughs> that was um, my joke. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I... It's it's weird. I revisited this movie this last weekend, too, and uh, I really kind of 
Blake, as you said, felt like this was going to be the one I had the least to say about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I don't know. The more I dwell on it, uh, like Mike mentioned, I, I don't think I really appreciated it for all it was worth way back when I saw it in, in the theater in 2015. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of stuff in this viewing that I kind of felt myself attached to more. And I, I think I just appreciated it more as a, as a whole, like back then I saw it for this super pretty, you know, legacy sequel to a pretty established film franchise. But now it's like, I don't know. I see it more as like a standalone thing that doesn't exactly rely on what came before it. And that's weird to say, because that's the only movie we're talking about tonight where one of the original creators kind of stepped back into the lead role and took the reins. Yeah. That's um, uh, that's a good, that's a good like reminder there. But uh, yeah, I mean, there were a lot of times when I was rewatching it where I was like, I wish I, I could learn more about the lore of these characters, like mm-hmm. a bit more of like, who a Morton Joe is and like how he came to power and like some of the silly little side characters that show up. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you have to step back and realize, unlike a lot of movies in this vein, as Mike mentioned, Furiosa is the hero, right? Yeah. But she's not, I I guess you could say she's not the, the main character. That's Max. Mm-hmm. And what's weird with this movie is like your your title character is the audience's self insert. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Do you get yeah. what I mean by that? Like, yeah, and that's not that's eyes. not the right, and that's not the case in a lot of movies. You don't consider the protagonist like the insert character. I mean, you mm-hmm. could probably but, count on both hands the number of lines Max actually says in the whole movie. I read that too. Uh, he yeah. has. 52 lines in the entire thing. Yeah. Um, and, and the road warrior, like Mel Gibson's Mad Max, like he didn't talk a lot in that movie either. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I, I, I don't know. I kind of appreciate that in a way that the protagonist becomes the insert vehicle character and they actually make it work. But yeah. And that's that's kind of when I stepped back and realized, like, it maybe it's good that we're not seeing the entire lore of these people and their background. Because, like, when when you're following Max, it's like he doesn't know all that. I mean, the movie begins from his perspective, and the very last shot of the movie is what he's seeing as he's leaving that crowd of people. He's like he's he's looking up and seeing Furiosa and them like rise up, yeah, back to the tower. And I think like but, um, I think in a way that's also like they don't want it to feel overproduced in that sense where it's like this is mm-hmm. kind of for as for as fantastical and bizarre and surreal and almost like a a, a wild fever dream that this mm-hmm. movie is. It, it's kind of accurate in a way where it's like. You know, if there would be a collapse of society in a post-apocalyptic world and like an, an ongoing forever war, there wouldn't be like any time for all these people to stop and give like their origin story or whatever, because everyone right. is constantly on the go, on the move. So it's like, you know, Furiosa can't give some big ass monologue that takes like 10 minutes and we see like mm-hmm. elaborate flashbacks, you know? Right. Yeah. 
And I, I think this movie does a really good job of walking that line where it's like, it, it, it gives you, it's not like it gives you so little that you're lost and like, you're distracted by the fact you're like, well, I don't know what this dude's deal is. Like, why does he look like that? Why is he dressed like that? But at the same time, it's not giving you so much that it detracts from like the visuals and what you're really there to see. Like yeah. it walks that really thin path really well. Yeah. Um, but, uh, one, one funny, uh, thing I always think about when I see the opening of this movie, mm-hmm. um, George Miller is the only director I can think of today who can make sped up footage, not look like a silly fucking mess. Yeah. That was kind of, it was kind of like almost anxiety inducing. Right. Like he's the only director I can think of that can make sped up footage work in a non comedic setting. Yeah. Yeah. I would like, I, I always think of that when I, when I see like clips or like the actual movie with that opening kind of chase and him trying to get away from the war boys, it's like that sped up footage actually kind of works in a weird way. Um, I just think it's wild how like a guy who's like the age of a grandpa made a more hardcore action movie than all these dudes, like half his age. Mm hmm. Yeah, I I still like to imagine in this series that like the rest of the world isn't like this. It's just Australia. <laughs> <laughs> like, everybody else is like, what what's going on over there? Um, the whole the but, whole uh, continent went to shit when Steve Irwin died. Yeah, well, that, well yeah. that, that's the funny thing too with Mad Max. Like most most apocalyptic movies, like it's like a disease or like nuclear war. Mm-hmm. It was it was an oil crisis. It was like kind of like the economic collapse of the world. Mm-hmm. Right. It's kind of just like humanity ate each other alive because the first Mad Max, like society still there, but it's like starting to fall apart. Yeah. This movie that- even, even found a way to reinvent that because it's an oil crisis turning into a water crisis on top of itself. Yeah. Cause like nobody has really any water. Right. Which, which that's like, that's literally the CEO or president or chairman or whatever his title is of Nestle. Like the main guy of Nestle is on record for saying that he does not believe water is a human right. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Yep. You know, um, you know, you know, is the, was cool. I like the name that a Morton Joe calls like his water. Do you remember what he calls it? No. He calls it aqua cola. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> It's almost like it's almost like a brand. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) But no, I mean, there's a lot to like about this movie. But one thing I still am not the biggest fan of is the way it reaches its third act. Um, I didn't like this when I first saw it. I still don't quite like it now, where they reach that tribe of uh, that Furiosa came from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The War Green, and they. yeah, yeah the, the and they immediately go, let's go back. Yeah. Now, I'm okay that they do that. Like, I get it, and it works by the by the end of the third act. But I, I wish there was more to why they do it other than they just have this sudden revelation. There's nothing else out there. Yeah, they just kind of quit. Like the, well, I, I mean, I, I get what they're going for because mm-hmm. Furiosa thought something was there, and they explained to her, "No, it all it's it's gone now." But it's yeah. I I just wish like 
maybe like that was their only way from escaping like the groups that were after them or something to head back in the the, the same direction they came but well i mean as it, it stands it was, it's just well it was also because like they realized too like Immortan joe and his whole army was like coming after them so the citadel right. was left unprotected yeah and and they said like since the green place like was gone and died mm-hmm. they, they said it's like oh well we could venture a hundred so miles into the desert but there's nothing out there it's like right the closest place where there's water and resources was the citadel so it's kind of like and Immortan joe and all of them aren't there so it's like well then we're just gonna have to fight through them and try and get back yeah and i get i get that like it's a it's a call of like desperation like they have no other choice but to go back but just the way they um elaborate that on that for the audience always kind of irked me for yeah one reason or another it's basically just an excuse just to have the whole movie on this like desert highway and be a right. whole highway battle yeah but, it, whole... but at the same time they like get back so much quicker like i, I get I this you to say that though yeah yeah it's like, because that, they come to that revelation at, like, the end of the second act. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. like, I, I don't know. I don't know. They, they, didn't, I, they didn't even have to spend a night time on the way back. Yeah. Right. But um, the whole movie um, is just a U-turn. <laughs> but uh, the, the only other thought I'll add, because we have other movies to talk about, is... Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I had this thought earlier. Like, you know how, like, with Star Wars, like, they made action figures of every little fucking background character mm-hmm. like, yeah. back in, like, the Kenner days? I wish there was something like that for Mad... Yeah, but I wish there was something like that for the Mad Max movies because there are so many fucking silly background characters in this I absolutely love. Yeah. Like, more of the central characters are cool. Like, the brides, a lot of them are, like, cool and unique from each other. But there's like one character I attached myself to in this viewing, and it it like absolutely killed me. There's like this weird bureaucratic dude with like a fucking club foot. Do do any of you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah he's oh, got yeah. that weird. He's yeah, got he, that weird like metal thing on his nose. He's he's yeah. got a weird gold nose. And yeah. at one point, he just he jumps out of the car. He just goes bollocks, and I'm like, yeah. oh my god, this is fucking amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he, do you know, do you know his his name was? I looked at it on the credits. no, no. He's called People Eater. Oh my God! And he, he's wearing a three-piece suit, but the nipples are cut out, and he's got his nipples chained together. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, he's like he's like a Morton Joe's like brother or something. Yeah, he's yeah. his brother, brother-in-law, or something like that. But well, it's like he's one of his brothers, and then the the small the the smaller guy in the chair is that like one of his brothers or his son or something? That's one of his. I sons. think that. Yeah, I think the little person is his son. And then the gotcha. big muscular guy, Rictus, is his son. Uh, he's like, I had a baby brother, and he was beautiful. Yeah, That's yeah. right, I forgot about that line. That line's great. And he was oh, perfect I... in every way. He was um, perfect, I swear. But yeah, the one guy you're talking about, Trevor, he basically looks like if Oswald Cobblepot got stung by a bunch of hornets. <laughs> I love him. I just, I love that there's some dude that still knows, like, like what a bureaucrat looks like in this day and age. And he's well, like, I'm, I'm going to commit to this. Well, and George Miller, he was always really good at, I mean, I wouldn't say his villains are the most like flawed or like really mm-hmm. like, um, like deep, but like his designs for villains are amazing. Yeah. Like, yeah. like Morton Joe and the Lord humongous. And yeah. Uh, even master blaster is pretty cool. 
Right, right. But I um, mean, and Morton Joe does. I feel like when I first watched it, like he didn't really have any motivation. But like when you look at it, like he's all about like his family, like his all the stuff. Yeah, he's like he's all about his family, and like he's about like producing like a perfect like heir. And that's why he, he right. keeps he keeps all the beautiful women like locked up for him to have. Mm-hmm. And, and he like, don't got a, he don't got much longer. I mean, and you got to think too. I mean, I'm not saying he's a good guy or nothing, but like the Rosie Rosie Huntington uh, Whiteley, who plays the one wife that he likes the most, like she's pregnant with his kid. Like, I mean, he is trying to just get his kid back. If you think about it, right, right before it's, before it's like stillborn or well, isn't isn't one of the other ones too. You yeah, find out she, later. She, yeah, she's just not showing because, like, yeah, she, Rosie Hunting and Whiteley was like about to pop. Yeah, <laughs> and, she, and, she, and he it, fucking, she got run over. Yeah. Well, I mean, it it goes to show because they like fucking flip that car to avoid hitting her. Like, yeah, because yeah. like, and he makes it a point that like he wants them all alive. Like, he's not like, right. oh, I want to kill them because they ran away and stuff. Like, he. Right. He has a twisted sense of that he cares for them. I mean, it's kind of just a shallow sense that, you know, he wants them to, you know, bear that, his children. I but... mean, he calls them property. Yeah. 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 And, and that's, um, that's the thing. This is, this is without a doubt, like one of the most feminist action movies ever made because the oh, yeah. whole point of the movie is just men are a bunch of fuck ups. They ruin everything. They're gross. And, um, you know, the real hero of the movie is Furiosa. You, you have these band of women that kick more ass mm. than Mad Max himself. And then they meet a bunch of elderly women and they kick more ass than Mad, Mad yeah, Max. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. All the protagonists are girls. Like the only ones, the only two that are guys are Max. Like Max and yeah. Nicholas Holt. But he was a bad guy. He just turned good. Yeah. Right. But was that your final thought, but- though, Trevor? Well, I was going to add, since we started talking about the wives, the Mike, the one you were just talking about, it it's like so fucking painful when she uh, assumedly dies. Yeah. Because it's like what I, I can't remember exactly how it worked, but she like avoided some sort of like obstacle and grabs the door. And then the fucking door falls off the car anyway. Well, like she was like she was like leaning out the side, and then like the truck hits right. something, and they thought like she got crushed, but then she kind of sticks out for a second, but then the, the yeah. door she's hanging on breaks and she falls. It, yeah. It's like so fucking painful because it's like oh my god, she like just escaped peril. Yeah, and they, fuck it. And, and they like want to go back for, her and they're like Max is like she went under the wheels, and they're like no, yeah. are you sure? Like did you really see it? And he's like she went under the wheels. Well, and then he imagines. He he like has a flashback to that girl, doesn't he? Yeah. His daughter. I, I, guess I read that's supposed not supposed to be his daughter. It's supposed to be from like some expanded like it comic ca- or it kind of looks like it kind of looks like the feral kid, but that was a boy. Oh, I thought it was his daughter. Yeah. I just assumed it was her. Uh, they do they do they do show callbacks, like the little flashbacks, like you see like the bat how the bad guy from the first movie dies when his like eyes bulge out. Yeah, and, yep. and you see Lord Humongous's mask like real quick. Yeah, mm-hmm. but but um, that's the last note I'll leave on. I appreciated it a lot more this time around, but the bla- basic plot still has its issues for me. Fair enough, Donnie. I feel like this movie, along with the Fast and the Furious movies, are the movies that like dude bros who meet up with their cars in the Walmart parking lot have wet dreams about. Um, when i first saw this movie i was also in the boat like i 
I thought it was cool. I think there's a lot to praise it for from a technical aspect. I think it has a lot going for it from a cinematography aspect. Um, it is a really cool, really nice looking um, action movie. Um, but I I did not then, and after rewatching it, I do not now feel that it deserved to be nominated for Best Picture. Um, mm-hmm. And my problem, I mean, Blake, you, you one of the first things you said hit the nail on the head for me with one of my complaints about this movie is how there's not a, a lot of context for a lot of these characters. Like the biggest example, in my opinion is Max. Um, especially when you consider, I mean, this movie came out like almost 30 years since the last Mad Max movie. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I have never seen any of the previous Mad Max movies. This is the only one I've seen. So I got nothing to compare it to and I got nothing to go off of. And I feel mm-hmm. like that, that goes for a lot of people who saw this movie. So, mm-hmm. We start off Max already talking about how like the world's gone to shit and he's like barely struggling to survive in it and how he's got this PTSD and he's having these flashbacks of all the shit he's experienced. It's like, okay, who are these people? What are these things he's experienced? How did this happen? Where? How did he get here? We're given none of that. Um, and it's it, it just kind of forces you to just kind of jump in and accept it as it is. Mm-hmm. That being said you're able to do that a lot easier with this movie than a lot of other movies. Um, Mm. As far as the plot goes, my problem with this plot isn't so much that it's too simple. It's that it's too repetitive. Um, I mean, by the third loud vehicular combat scene, I was like, all right, is anything else going to happen in this movie? Um, Because all those, all those scenes are pretty lengthy too. Um, Mm. It's like, there's just not a lot going on like there's a lot going on and then there isn't a lot going on at the same time in this movie Um, yeah but like i said i mean it's cinematography wise it's amazing um you know i I give mad props for all the stunts and the design they pulled off i definitely agree with mike that this world does feel lived in it feels like there is established culture amongst the Mm. different tribes in this world um i just feel like we're just not given enough context to truly appreciate those things. Um, But that being said, it is a pretty awesome action movie um, in all regards. Um, I mean, it's, you know, I I know I just spent the past several minutes just kind of talking shit on it, but in all honesty, it is a really cool movie. Um, I just don't think it was, you know, a masterpiece. Like a lot of people said when it first came out, I definitely agree with you that it was way overhyped. Um, but I think, you know, that the, the Furiosa prequel will be pretty cool. Um, and I, I wouldn't have an issue with Tom Hardy getting a sequel at some point down the road, if that were to ever happen. Yeah. 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 I don't know. There was, a, the there was a time where they said he signed on for three more. Yeah. 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 Well, he, he, like, was bu- he was busy making Venom. You think, you think yep. how successful this movie was, they'd be really like pushing a sequel, but they really haven't. They're kind of like taking their something, time with it. Something I just thought of, is it just me or did like the buzz kind of die for it overnight? Um, it did well at the awards. It did well at the Oscars. But like Yeah, but I mean like after that, like it wasn't some iconic movie that was remembered years later. Yeah. Uh, I, I see like on the on the Instagrams and and Twitters that I follow that like are like you know aesthetical like aesthetics and cinematography and film stuff. No, they reference it a lot. 
okay. from our point of view. But I, I always see pictures of like women cosplaying female versions of Morton Joe. <laughs> but a, a big thing though was the fuck. Are you looking up? I've never seen. It's, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's not. It's not porn. It's just cosplay. As well as it, no, I know what he's <laughs> if I if about. I had a nickel for every time I heard that. As well oh, yeah. as as well as it did at the Oscars, it didn't do that well at the box office. And right. then there was also some dispute between George Miller and Warner Brothers over um, the rights to it. And I think like they didn't even want to pay him royalties for like this movie. Yeah, then, they they sued each other after the movie came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was that's a always awful. a good that's always a good sign. Yeah, because yeah, he yeah. But anyway, it's it, it surprised me a little bit. Another thing I saw is that it, like you wouldn't guess it from watching it, but apparently like George Miller and Tom Hardy did not get along very well while shooting. Oh, nobody oh, got really? nobody got along yeah. while shooting this movie just because of how awful it was to shoot. I mean, you got to think you're in the middle of the fucking outback where it's always two million degrees. <laughs> like you're in that part of Australia where no one lives. Yeah, and yeah. you're you're isolated except for you know amongst each other it's hot out and like right. you're, you're having to shoot this movie with all these dangerous stunts going on like mm -hmm. yeah i'd fucking hate everybody too <laughs> meanwhile i just imagine all of new zealand looking like the shire um I'm, yeah i'm just i'm just sitting here trying to take a nap and there's a dude over there with a fucking flamethrower guitar on bungee cords like jesus christ yeah <laughs> <laughs> moving on finally yeah to the second film of the night, Blade Runner 2049. Now, this, yeah. This, I, I, this just heard, is, I just heard a butthole clinch. This, this, <laughs> this is now going to be the difficult part of the podcast, at least for me, because the next two movies, I love them so much, and I can gush over them so much, I almost don't know where to start. Um, That's what I'm scared of for this one as well. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, bad news is you're going up after me. Um, oh. <laughs> he, here's here's the thing with Blade Runner 2049. The the original Blade Runner, I remember it was I think it was Christmas 2005 or 2006. My dad got me the director's cut on DVD. Um, was this one of the ones where you got sick or not? Nah? No, I didn't get sick. But okay. I remember, I remember, because because let, let's be honest here, you know, growing up, like when it comes to Christmas, that's the mom's job. Like that's that's. <laughs> that's the Whoa. But, uh, no, I mean, I mean let's because my uh, hashtag cancel Blake. Uh, Blake's canceled. Every, everybody, everybody took that the wrong way. Like, like when it came to going out and like say that know, on Twitter later. Searching for <laughs> Christ. <laughs> When it came to like searching for my Christmas list, it was always like my mom that did that. And and even my wife has has a joke where she's like, you know, yeah, growing up, my dad was always just as excited as we were to see what we got for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> but but my dad specifically went out and he picked this out for me. And he had seen it in he had seen it on, you know, video um when I was still like you know, can't couldn't even walk yet because I think it was like, no, I was I was just a toddler because I think it came out like the VHS for the director's cut came out in like 1992. But anyway, what I'm getting at is this was one of the last movies my dad had to introduce me to because of course like 
he showed me Star Wars. He showed me Indiana Jones. He rented, you know, the Christopher Reeve Superman movies for me. He had the um, the the um, the the four Batman box set on VHS that was, you know, Burton and Schumacher. But this was like, at this point, it was like, okay, you're old enough now where you, you're you have to go out and you know discover whatever movies you want to see on your own now. But this was like the last movie he introduced me to. And I know when I say that, it makes it sound like he passed away right after he gave me. <laughs> but, but, but I thought I thought it was really in cool. memory of Phil. I, Son, this really happens. Watch it over and over. Prepare. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <laughs> it takes place here. His granddaughter was born, which is hilarious. Yeah. But anyway, um, it went a little differently than expected. Anyway, anyway, but. What I'm really trying to get at is I loved it. I thought it was a aesthetically pleasing film before I even knew that what that phrase was. Um, and I was really excited to show it to Michael and Andrew. You know, I remember I went over to Andrew's for like a sleepover and I was like, oh, you guys got to watch this one movie my dad gave me for Christmas. And they thought it was cool. And and but despite despite what following it had, it was a cult classic. I mean, it is a cult classic in every sense of the phrase, but despite how much it was loved by who it was loved by, there was always like this, this agreement, this understanding that it was a one and done. It was an open and shut in and out. Like, I don't think anybody ever expected there was ever going to be a sequel. Cause obviously it bombed in theaters. Nobody, I feel like nobody had really held out hope for a sequel. Nobody begged for one. Like we just all lived in a world where we just unanimously, you know, agreed that like Blade Runner, there was only ever going to be one movie. So when I heard that they were finally going to make a second movie, I was like, well, this could be, this could be pretty cool. And then my excitement went through the ever fucking roof when they said that Vinny Delon, v- v- shit. <laughs> Denny V. How do, you, how do you pronounce this guy's name? I believe uh, I should know this, but I, I believe it's. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. The director of Prisoners was going to make it. And I was like, okay, like, I don't think I could possibly any be any more excited for this movie. And then they announced that it was going to star the goose. The um, goose. The goose. The goose. I just love how. Ryan Go- Praise like, him. His nickname's the Goose. On on a um shit posting group, yeah, they call him the Goose. Oh. Um, I, just I was like, that. I was like the Goose, like like Top Gun. But I just love how you know my favorite twist was between the 2000s and the 2010s. Ryan Gosling's fan base changed from a group of teenage girls who love the Notebook to a group of, you know, 20-something, 30-something-year-old guys on the internet that love his jackets. Um, but, I mean, Ryan Gosling, like, in Drive, in this, and Place Beyond the Pines, like, he's literally me. Like, he, he is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Don't toot your horn too much. Michael, if you're unaware, that's also a joke on the shitposting groups. It's like all these dudes say that Ryan Gosling is literally them. Literally me. Oh, so he, he's just everybody. He's he's like the most re- – the joke is that he's the most relatable protagonist in the last 10 years because he's just quiet but cool and like he keeps to himself, but he has a lot of thoughts and feelings, and they're just like, 
no, man. Like he, he's literally me. <laughs> he's literally me. Hey, man. But but, he, he but, if, but if anyone tried to attempt any of the stuff he did in the movies, they'd either pussy out or get killed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you can look at the you can look at the amount of photos of people online wearing the drive jacket and it fitting poorly or just looking goofy, and you, you would know yeah. that. Or you That's can just, tell they they can tell they live in their mom's basement. <laughs> That's, yes. that's just like when you see someone wearing a Superman t-shirt that's all baggy. It's like it just doesn't look right. It's um, not, not quite. Not quite. But, Superman's sick. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, Sorry, Billy. Superman slipped a disc. <laughs> Blade Runner 2049. It's, it's a very hard movie to recommend to other people because I have to start off being honest with it. I'm like... It's very long and it's very slow. And they're like, okay, well then what are you recommending here? Why do you love it so much? And I, one of the first things I have to say is it is the most beautiful looking movie I've ever seen, especially Mm -hmm. among any genre film. Like it's, I mean, I grew up being a huge fan of science fiction, you know, movies and, and just the more, I was more sci-fi than I was fantasy. You know, Michael and Andrew would talk about the more fantasy side of stuff with, you know, knights and, you know, medieval stuff. And I just could never relate as much. It just wasn't my genre. But um, I think it's, you're a fucking dick. I gave you treats and you're still <laughs> yelling. <laughs> <laughs> what if he just what if he just didn't come back yeah, yeah no i'm back i'm back um i'm sorry i'm sorry I, I, you, I you literally couldn't have exploded if you didn't have exploded if you hadn't exploded i wouldn't have even fucking explode. if you had not exploded i wouldn't have even noticed the meow um my bad but anyway i told y'all i was gonna gush over this no i i absolutely love this movie I mean, I'm I'm just it's one of those things where I can go in a million different directions, but I, I think, you know, if it if it pleases the court, I'm gonna let y'all go and I'm just gonna interject when when it's convenient for me. So Trevor, you love this movie as much as I do. You go ahead. Um I I I am a huge Denny V film or I can't even talk. I love this movie so much. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of, of Denny V. And, uh, I mean, from, from the moment Blake encouraged me to watch prisoners, I like, haven't, haven't turned back on any of his films. I, I love each and every one of them in their own way, but 2049 really stands out to me. Um, what I like about this movie is even though we're talking about legacy sequels, this movie completely stands on its own without needing much from the original. Um, yeah, it, the plot uh, requires the original in some ways, but you could easily watch this movie without seeing the original Blade Runner. Um, in fact, I don't think I saw the original until a little after I saw 2049 in theaters. Really? And yeah. Well, uh, I, no, I remember. I remember you seeing OG Blade Runner before 2049. Really? We know. We literally. We literally watched the the director's cut or final cut, whichever one, like the night before we saw it in theaters. Okay. Well, regardless, I 
I don't know. I I enjoy this movie today even without having revisited the original Blade Runner that much. Um, it it's it's interesting because like it it fulfills the aesthetic of the original Blade Runner, but it kind of makes it its own. Yeah. When I watch the original, it feels like a fever dream to me. I don't know how how better to explain it. That's not a bad thing, but it's like a weird dreamscape. Like it doesn't feel real. Like it feels like I'm half awake the entire time I'm watching it. Right. But this one, on the other hand, it takes that aesthetic, but I I don't know. I just feel like it's more action-packed. It's more immersive, mm-hmm. but... I don't know. I'm kind of like you, Blake. I can go in 50 million directions, and I think I'm gonna. But, um... Yeah, I mean... I I mean, it's just... It's just... A lot of people would have groaned and rolled their eyes mm -hmm. hearing that it was gonna be two hours and 45 minutes. But for me, I was just like, oh my god, Merry fucking Christmas. (laughs) And that's the thing, like, this... It's... I find it really hard to encourage other people to watch this movie. Like as you kind of talked about Blake, but like I like close friends as well as like my wife, I know she would never enjoy this, Mm -hmm. but for like someone who's like really into movies and just knows a lot about the history of Blade Runner and everything like this is, it's it's a borderline masterpiece to me like i i i I'll always say prisoners is like my favorite movie yeah especially of of i'm just gonna keep saying denny v's movies but uh yeah. um this is a really close second and it's still like one of my favorite movies of all time um i mean i wasn't i don't love arrival and i mm-hmm. i sicario just did not do it for me but I mean, honestly, that's, like, that's the least of of his for me to this but, day. Really? Yeah, yeah. I but, love Sicario. But like, I just the subject matter. I I don't know. I've never found that like captivating. Yeah, I I, I think it was just a waste of his eye, really. Um, but as far as like prisoners in twenty forty nine, no, he like in less than a decade, he made two near perfect films, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, like his other movies, it's like Arrival. I I do like that movie a lot, um, but what I lean towards in that movie is the plot. The plot is what really gets me in that one, especially the twists and turns. Um, Sicario, it's like all visuals what I like because the plot just doesn't really immerse me that much. But this and Prisoners are the closest to like a full picture. I think he he's come. Yeah. And like, I I just I I love so much about this movie. Um, one thing I kind of sat and thought about when I rewatched it recently is, I I'm amazed that scene involving um, Joy and uh, her name escapes. Um, it's like Mariette or something. The prostitute. Oh, Mackenzie Davis is the actor. Yeah, her character. Her character. I think her name's like Mariette or something. Yeah. But um the scene where they like sync up is like so beautiful in like such a strange way. Yeah. Like I'm amazed that scene isn't like some iconic thing you hear about in like 
like some of the the best scenes in recent years and stuff like that that scene like is is trippy in a weird way and like i've never seen special effects like that in something my best guess is that the reason why it's not talked about a lot is because for some weird reason even though you're going to see like a a a science fiction like philosophical film Mm. that probably made a lot of people just feel uncomfortable for some odd reason. The funny yeah, thing is, and is on, on paper was, it sounds weird, but... The funny thing is that scene was kind of already done in another movie. Oh, in what Her. Movie? It, it kind of happened in the movie Her. Oh, yeah. I mean, but, I'm, saying, I'm not saying... I, I'm referring more to like the visual later. this time around. Yeah. Like seeing them kind of blend into each other to the point where like you lose one's face and then you see the others like... It it just like blew me away for one reason or another. Like I I love that scene. Yeah. Um. What else do I got? Um. F- for the most part, I really like the overall plot line of this movie and what the real deal with K is all along. Um. I like. I just think. It's really, I just think it's really impressive how like all the trailers, all the promotional stuff, like. You find out that Kay is a replicant in the first ten minutes of the movie, but you didn't know mm-hmm. that until until you walked into this movie. Like they right, they, like all the all the material led you to believe that's going to be the big question. Yeah, and they're like, nope, we'll clear that out right away. But um, the big question is: is he like when they throw in, is he human or not? Right, because they and I love I love that that's the reoccurring thing throughout the movie. Like, is he or isn't he this? procreated replicant that's that's one of the great gif reacts of all time yeah oh the the one i the one i sent to you earlier blake where it's him in the room or or as donnie goes he looks like he's holding in a fart Um, yeah (laughs) but that found out spoilers i'm sorry but the movie's like four but three years old um yeah you know harrison ford's daughter goes somebody lived this and he's just like god Damn it! <laughs> because yeah, because at that point in the movie, he thinks those ideas were just kind of like a simulated thing in his head. Yeah, and he finds out no, those are real memories. Mm-hmm. But I, I just love, and it works to the movie's advantage so much that like, it doesn't give you the resolution for K that you're expecting. No, in fact, no. it jerks you back and forth on it like three times. And it never, like, becomes annoying or repetitive in that. No. Like, it gives you just enough each time to be like, maybe he is, maybe he isn't. But, I don't know, in more recent years, I've I've liked that occasionally a movie comes along that isn't afraid to give you the ending that you don't necessarily want. Yeah. Like, I, t- I talked about that a lot with um, Ad Astra recently. That's another movie in that. I still need to see town. that. Well... Spoiler, it doesn't give you the ending you want. Um, but I I just love how that's done here. It's like, well, all at once, you find out with him, no, you're not who you think you are. Yeah. Or who you've grown to think you are throughout the course of the movie. Yeah. All, they, all they have to say is, she, and he immediately knows, oh. Yeah. Well, as far as like casual or mainstream viewers not receiving what they would necessarily want, like mm-hmm. in a way, this movie is ballsy. But then in another way, like it is the one critique I have is, and I, 
I, I know this will make me sound like a plebe or whatever, but like mm -hmm. this movie lacks a main true villain, like a one true villain. Like it's either it's either Jared Leto or it's Jared Leto's assistant. But then also like this movie ends and like Jared Leto gets away. Like it just they don't right. he never gets confronted or whatever. Like it, it just it doesn't matter. Like he gets away basically scot free probably. Yeah, it's by the end of the movie, you basically forget about the villains because that's yeah. not what you're along for. Like, Love, I believe her name is. I mean, she kind of comes and Love. goes. Love's her name. Yeah. yeah. And then Wallace, you don't really find out what happens to him. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the last you see him is the scene with Harrison Ford, right? Which yeah. is a great scene. Yeah, yeah, that's a great scene, but well, her eyes are green. Like Ryan Gosling never meets him. Like the main, yeah. the main protagonist and the main antagonist never meet, which is right. weird. Um, it's like the fifth element. But yeah, that's true too. As as much as much flack as Jared Leto's got in more recent years, I I do like what he did with Wallace in this movie. Like, yeah, you know, you know, he, a movie's good when you have something good to say about Jared Leto. Yeah, Jared Leto, we need you to play a character with like this kind of god complex. Well, he say has, no more. He yeah, has, honestly, he has maybe my favorite line in the whole movie, which is you love pain because it reminds you that the joy you once felt was real. Like, right. That line will fuck you up. <laughs> like, right. do, you, do you know who was supposed to play his character originally? No. Bowie. Bowie. Oh, that, that would he, be wild. But because he died, like, you know, they had. Man. Because that's apparently that's who Denny had in like mind, like while he was yeah. writing it. I, I love how we've just adopted the nickname Denny, like he's like our neighbor. <laughs> yeah, it's well, I think that's no, I think that's how you pronounce his first name, Denny. Yeah, 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 yeah Denny. Denny. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Um, Denny, Denny. I'm being but, a snob. but back back to Wallace. Um, just, just, I, just just a couple more final thoughts though, Trevor. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. I could go on all day. Um, well, don't. Okay, uh, it is night as well, um, but yeah, Wallace is like just—I don't know what Jared Leto does with that character. It's like this really, without doing a whole much, whole lot outside of dialogue, he's just like this really intimidating force. I—I I don't know how better to say it. Very at sinister. first, like yeah, at first the whole he blinded himself thing is a little fucking silly. But I I don't know like it just adds to how intimidating he is for me. Um, and just to add one more thought here before I'm done. Uh, uh, the scene where Kay is chasing Harrison Ford through the casino and they're kind of like shooting each other mm -hmm. um, in the big like stage show. That is probably one of my favorite action scenes from anything in recent years just the weird hologram elvis cutting in and out like the music just coming on for like a split second like that yeah. scene is like sensory overload in all the best ways and i love yeah. it yeah especially when harrison ford accidentally punches ryan gosling which he did yeah that was real yeah yeah and i mean it's just like as far as overload goes, like every single scene in this movie has like an all time like cinematography shot. Like mm -hmm. it's, I mean, because in this won the Academy Award for that because it was Roger Deakins 
who did the Shawshank Redemption and Skyfall. And I think he did No Country for Old Men as well. And like, you could just feel that like when he walked on this set for the first time, he's like, mm. okay, I'm ready for my first Oscar. Like I'm tired of dicking around now. Um, <laughs> it's time to bring well, your A game. Speaking of which, cause I was reading about this too. Um, do you, like, do you know that the technical reason why pretty much the entire movie is at nighttime and it's raining? No. Denis was like really like he was really anxious that it would be clear that they were filming on the back lot. And I don't think that shows through at all. Like, well, the, the first movie had a lot of scenes in the rain too. Yeah. But I I mean, of course they're going to do some scenes at night with rain and everything, but that's the reason why the entire movie is like that. Wow. Is he was, he was really paranoid that it would be like clear to the viewer that they were shooting on a back lot. Yeah. So they basically masked it every way they could. And I mean, not, not once, you know, with suspension of disbelief and everything, would I have thought that was on a back lot. Well, yeah. Like you barely see the sun at all in this movie. Mm -hmm. So the most part when he's like walking through that desert, but it's still kind of like foggy. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing. They, again, made that really foggy for that same reason. Yeah. And then I remember hearing that, like, the the iconic shot where the giant hologram of Joy is talking to him, like, that was real. Like, they projected her in a mist-filled room and just touched, used CGI to touch it up with. Like, he's not just looking at, like, a bunch of golf balls or, like, a green screen or whatever. Like, they tried to make that as authentic as possible. This is uh-huh. not why I. This is not why I became an actor. <laughs> yeah. Poor yeah. Ian McKellen. <laughs> Sorry, Ian McKellen. But, yeah. I mean, talk at the tennis ball. Talk. Le- talk at the tennis ball like it's Frodo. No. 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 no I, I mean, not, not, to, not to get off topic, but I I was recently because wa- I rewatched Lord of the Rings. I recently watched like a lot of the behind the scenes stuff for that in The Hobbit, and the shit Ian McKellen had to do would have been so fucking hard. Like it's not, it wasn't even like talking to tennis balls. Like he had to, the, the dwarves and Bilbo like filmed all the scene together. Then he had to film like a scene completely separate and line. Because he's so much bigger, right? Yeah. Yeah. And like line up and line up the footage. So it looks like he's like standing beside them and talking to him and they, and they're literally watching the footage of the dwarves and they're like, no, Ian, you got to do this. They're like, oh, this person's there, that person's there. And it's like, and he's like in his seventies and it's like, God, it's like, if I had to do that scene, I'd be fucking pissed off. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, it's like, it's like he was basically quarantined off from the rest of the cast in a way. Pretty much, and he's like, yeah, yeah. He's like, I work with actors, and he's all upset. It's <laughs> just like, oh, I feel bad for him. You That's great. Talk to the tennis ball now. No, <laughs> no, no. You had a Shakespearean trained senior citizen have like a fucking like malfunction. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. smog's coming. Run away! Come on now. Um. <laughs> Imagine, imagine if they, no, please, please. Imagine if they gotten because originally Sean Connery was asked to play Gandalf. Imagine if that happened, he would have fucking hit somebody. Oh yeah, he, he would be. He'd be like, "Where's your wife? I'm gonna fucking hit her." I'm gonna smack her silly. I'm gonna smack her silly, Peter. You're driving me fucking nuts. <laughs> 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 
but but I deserve I deserve to be canceled because I acknowledge that moms usually do most of the Christmas shopping. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm just betraying John Connery how he really was. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> it's called it's called parody, Blake. It's legal. Where's Where's your wife? I'm gonna fucking hit her. <laughs> I'm gonna smack a shilly, Peter. Come on. The name's The name's Peter. abuse. Spousal abuse. <laughs> <laughs> No, that that should be the title of this episode. It's Sean Connery smacks your wife. <laughs> oh, I thought you were just gonna have it be the the fat minute episode twenty spousal abuse. <laughs> that too. No fuck. Sean okay, Connery smacks your wife. Anyways, so uh, anyways, Blade Runner. <laughs> as I've as I've said before, as I've said before, this is a hard movie to recommend for me. And I've basically accepted that, like, it's a very niche movie. Like, it's right. It, it you know, so so with that in mind, I am both terrified yet I have tried to be at peace with what may come next. Donnie, you just saw this finally, like yesterday, <laughs> like two days ago, maybe two days ago. So I wait because I have no idea what you think of this movie. So. You go ahead. Yeah, I like to keep you in suspense, Pookie. Um, <laughs> yeah, I saw not only this movie, but the original for the first time this week. Um, I watched the final cut of the original because I was told by our wonderful co-host, my, my wonderful co-host, that that is the best version to watch. Um, so, And this is some real bullshit right here. I, I'm trying to watch Blade Runner 2049. It wasn't on HBO Max or Hulu, even though the final cut of the original Blade Runner is. I couldn't even find a fucking site to pirate this movie from. So I had to drop four bucks on the PlayStation store to rent it so I could watch it. And then literally the next day, those fuckers put it on HBO Max. I fucking hate capitalism. Anyway. <laughs> I get 45 minutes in and I realize it's the Tom and Jerry movie. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, watching the original Blade Runner. That, this movie, the original Blade Runner, is basically if 2001 A Space Odyssey and The Terminator had a baby. Um, it's just a very aesthetically pleasing movie. It, it's a cool movie, and my only... I'm not going to spend too much time talking about the original Blade Runner, but my only major complaint about the original one is the original movie kind of presents itself as a slow-burn crime noir thriller, in a way. And the problem with... When you do a movie like that, you have to always make sure the plot is progressing in some degree. And in the original movie, there's a lot of large gaps where Harrison Ford is completely absent. And in those gaps, the plot does not really move at all. And it just it just really takes the movie from being a slow burn to being a snail's pace, in my opinion. Um, he, probably, he probably didn't even want to be on set because, you know, it's Harrison Ford. <laughs> yeah. But... Moving like the the original movie is still pretty cool, but moving on to Blade Runner twenty forty nine, twenty forty nine is head and shoulders better than the original movie. It manages to do what the original movie did, but better in the sense of that slow burn sci fi crime thriller. Whereas it's a slow burn, but the plot is always moving. Even the scenes where Ryan Gosling is not the main focus, or even when he's not even around the plot is still moving. There's always something going on, even if it's something small and something minuscule, something that doesn't seem like it's of great importance. Something is still happening. The movie is always moving. So that's why even though it is a bit of a long movie, you don't really feel it. 
Um, like I think it's it's a very aesthetically pleasing movie. Um, the the only complaint I have with 2049 is it has a similar problem that Mad Max Fury, Fury Road has, which is it just drops you in this world and expects you to just take it for what it is. Specifically, when it comes to this movie, the, the, that problem specifically stems from the the plot device of oh. We just found out a replicant got pregnant and had a child, and it's just like. Not only that, it also happened. the The replicant that got pregnant and had a child was the main was the love interest of the main character from the last movie. It just it comes out of nowhere. It just feels like it ventures kind of into fan fiction territory. In all honesty, and it also I'm trying to think of how I want to put this. It just it just feels almost shoehorned in a way it's just like you expect me to believe that like because they talk about how they've just made the, the the replicants more obedient more docile and stuff like that um but it's just like all of a sudden it's like okay they can have children now but for some reason an older model from 30 years ago managed to get pregnant but the newer models they can't figure out how to do it um it just it's it's just weird to me. It also, it just requires a little too much suspension of disbelief. It's like, how is a machine getting pregnant from a biological being and then creating a child? Is that child biological or machine or somewhere in between? How does it work? I don't, it, it just, it, it was too big of a question for me that kind of got distracting at times. Um, and then well, they, they also still haven't confirmed or denied that if Decker, Harrison Ford's character, is a replicant or not. Like, it was it mm-hmm. replicant on replicant love or human on replicant love? I think the fact that he's alive in Blade Runner 2049 kind of throws the replicant theory out the window, since in that movie they could only live for four years. Yeah. Also, that was something that only Ridley Scott believed. Like, yeah. that, was never, that was never an intention that Harrison Ford was a replicant. Yeah. Yeah, and and Harrison Ford said he doesn't believe he is. But the final cut does life. Yeah. Well the final <laughs> cut does imply like that he is like but the whole unicorn thing, like he has implanted memories. Yeah. Right. But anyway, it's that that little plot device just kinda got it got too fan fictiony and a little too distracting for me at times just because it just raised too many questions and required just a little too high suspension of disbelief. Um but I do like I do love how, like Trevor said, the movie just jerks you left and right all over the place with who and what K is, because you know when they're like when they're like, oh, this replicant had a child. I was immediately like, oh, it's K is going to be the child, and he's going to be the son of Harrison Ford. And then all of a sudden, it just pulls the rug out from under you. It's like, huh, you thought? <laughs> yeah. I I'm so glad that it did that because if it turned out K was Harrison Ford's son. I would have not liked this movie as much as I do. Um, well, because, that that would have been peak fan fiction. Then, yeah, I feel like because they, yeah, they, they do that. They do that in every almost every legacy sequel. It's like, oh, well, the son or the daughter's the main character. Well, exactly. I could be wrong here, but the whole thing with um, oh god, what what was her name in the original? Who? Rachel. Rachel. That that whole thing where like. She has a child. That's apparently from a book they made in the nineties. Huh. Yeah, they they made sequel yeah. books, but none of those books were yeah. written by the original author. Right, yeah. right. But apparently that was lifted like straight from that, and they converted that into like a a device here. But um, 
Donnie, something you said just reminded me that I didn't mention. Um, the fucking baseline test scenes are amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, I legit started, like, that first one in the beginning of the movie, right, ever he gets the shit kicked out of him by Batista. Uh-huh. Um, and he's taking that baseline test. I legit started getting like sensory overload really bad from it. Like it right. al- they, it, they it, do it, that so well. Yeah. It almost triggered me real bad. Yeah. Um, and then also my problem with, you know, like the ending to this movie is like, they managed to make an ending more powerful than the ending to the original movie, which is saying something. Um, yeah. Cause, cause, um, what what was the name the the actor who played the villain in the first film? I don't know, but Red I know I got Howard. I know I know I got weirded out when he started chasing Harrison Ford ass naked. What, what, what I'm what time I'm to at, die. What I'm is getting at is Rudger um, Howard. Rudger Howard. Rudger Howard's like His character's name is Roy Batty. Yeah, Roy Batty is and not to not to interrupt for too long, Donnie. Like the villain in the first film, Rudger Howard, like his monologue right before he dies is pretty great though. Oh yeah. Um. But then the well, ending the, to the, the villain's the villain's last name was Batty. It's like poetry. <laughs> <laughs> but the ending of this movie, in my opinion, is even more powerful. Just how it just all kind of comes together and just ends in a good mm-hmm. way. Um, but my problem with the reveal that the doctor is Harrison Ford's daughter, it's just like I, I don't have a problem so much with the fact that she's you know the the child of a machine and a man. My problem is that there is nothing to hint at. If there is, I completely missed it. Nothing to hint at that being the case. And Harrison Ford's character just sort of comes to that conclusion based on nothing. Um, so it just felt like too much of a left turn to me. I I can see where you're coming from with that because it it isn't... You can tell they didn't believe it was established that well. Mm-hmm. Because there is there is a recall when when that revelation is made to um, the scene where Kay is talking to her, and she's looking through that machine into his mind to look at the memories. Mm-hmm. They they clip back to that scene, right? So to me that that reads like they they didn't think it was that strong of a connection either. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I don't think he's one to normally do that, like, recall to an earlier scene. Right. Well, do they do they even say if, like, she knows who her parents are or if she Harrison doesn't. Ford or if Harrison Ford knows that he has a daughter? He knows she... he has a he knows he has a child, but he does not know the identity of that child. OK, she knows she was orphaned at like age eight. She says something along the lines of that. Yeah. But you, I mean, back to like, you know, the twists and turns and having the rug pulled out from under you. Like, a great moment is when, you know, Ryan Gosling is in like that factory where he has the memory of being bullied by the kids and he has like mm-hmm. the boy horse and stuff. Like, when he goes down there and he finds in the ash pit the wooden toy horse, mm-hmm. like, that, that seems haunting. It's it's just like at that point in the movie, I was like, okay, like what what's going on? Like right, yeah, and that's also kind of I feel like an homage to the final cut, like with the the origami unicorn unicorn for Deckard, and like Kay has the wooden horse. Yeah. Well, there's there's a scene later where the the morning after the 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 whole scene with Joy and the prostitute, 
mm-hmm. um, when she wakes up, she looks at the horse on the table and the way the shadows are aligned, it looks like the paper unicorn. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. But any uh, final thoughts, though, Donnie? Any final thoughts, though? I, I, it stinks. I, I'll show you that's something that stinks. I, I don't know about you, but Blake might. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, I think I think it's a it's a great movie. I think it's an awesome movie. Um, I think it's you know it's it's a sequel that's not only better than the original. It's a legacy sequel that's even better than the original, which is you know especially hard to do in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So I mean, if you, I, I agree. I agree. I don't even think you have to watch the original movie to watch this one for the most part. Um, so yeah, I I definitely recommend it. it. It gives you a nice little recap right at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Which is another problem I had with the original Blade Runner when they were like, you know, suddenly replicants went, you know, rogue and started attacking their masters. And it's just like, okay, then why is this company still allowed to exist? Right. <laughs> because they, they did a BP where they put out an ad where they're just like, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. sorry. But no, I had I, too much I, money to cancel. <laughs> I, am, I am pleasantly uh, pleased with that then. Fuck you. Um, uh, uh, oh, okay. Uh, okay. Michael, you go ahead. Oh yeah, Michael hasn't gone yet. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, I will say I I won't have I guess as much to say as everybody else. I've only seen this movie once in theaters, and I unfortunately didn't get a chance to rewatch it. And I wish I did because there I feel like there's a lot of stuff that I've forgotten. Next movie. Yeah. But no, but but what I do remember, yeah, no, I I agree. I would say, yeah, definitely plot-wise, I think the second, <clears throat> excuse me, the second one is an improvement of the first one. I've seen the first one multiple times. I I uh, I have all the cuts on Blu-ray and the big collection. Um, I will say though, with the original Blade Runner, I think it is very much like uh, style over substance. Like I think people are so enamored with Blade Runner because of the atmosphere and like the look of the movie. I feel like that's inspired a lot of things like something that popped in my head, like Akira, like you can tell Akira was very much inspired by Blade Runner. Like, yeah. But I think the sad thing is kind of repeating what happened with the original Blade Runner in 2049 is that even though these movies are adored by, you know, cinephiles and movie critics and fans, it is not adored or, well, not, I wouldn't say not adored, but like not noticed by the average person because both Mm. movies bombed, (laughs) Um, which, which really sucks. But um, I mean, yeah, all the performances are great. Ryan Gosling was a great choice for the lead. Um, I will say it's it's that one of the things that always stuck out to me, like his whole relationship with uh, Anna de Armas like character, like was she called she was called Joy, wasn't she? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I totally bought that he was in love with a hologram. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like well, dude, totally like, bought that. That's the thing, like all the guys that have like you know, uh, virtual like catfish girlfriends online. They're able to watch Ryan Gosling in this movie and be like, "He's literally me. He has <laughs> he's literally me." <laughs> they have like a sex doll or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My hologram but, like, GF. But no, like I remember, like it's that one scene. Like I think it's before he runs into Harrison Ford, and 
the like bad guys or whatever, like they go to step on like her little control chip thingy. And like, she literally like the holograms like laying there and like looks at him and like, she like cries out, like, I love you. And like, it's basically like she died. And like, it felt Mm -hmm. like a character died in a movie. And then later on when he sees that giant hologram of her and she's just like, you look like a nice Joe, like the one he had called him earlier. It's just like, (laughs) you could just kind of see in his face, like, Oh, you're programmed to feel that that way. Yeah. Kind of like, yeah. No, go ahead, Trevor. No, just to add, like that part where Joy gets essentially killed, it's it's done like so raw too. I fucking love it for that. Like there isn't there's barely a moment to even process it before it moves on to the next thing. And yeah. I I like that it isn't really dwelled on. Like it almost it almost feels anticlimactic. Well but well that's like yeah, no, I agree with that. And, and yeah. that's one of the great debates with this movie is, like, like I agree with you, Michael, and I think other people do. Like, you believe that Ryan Gosling was in love with a hologram, but, like, one of the debates is, was Joy's love for him real? Like, was Joy's yeah, love for him real? And, like, I think that's why there's that iconic shot where it's just, like, Ryan Gosling is just so fucking cool in this movie. Like, everything he does is perfect here, but, like, when he has the bandage over his nose and he's all bloodied face and whatever, and he just looks down like, and he, and it's like what Donnie said, how he's just like, Oh, so there was nothing special about what she told me. Like, it's just almost like what's what soul he does have is just crushed in that moment. Yeah. It, well, it kind of, it kind of, he, he has it, nothing left at that point. Well, and it kind of all reverberates back to him because it kind of it reminds you, and it's also kind of ironic that the vessel she uses for them to like phys- physically like make love was a prostitute that you pay for. So it's kind of mm-hmm. like, was the love genuine or was it processed and paid for? Just something you buy in a store. And it's kind of I feel like that kind of goes back to him because him being a replicant, like, is his feelings of love and loss real or is it just processed and purchased? You know. Um. It's it's it is a very it's a it's a very deep movie and like so is the original one. Um, I and one of the things I feel like I really need to refresh myself. I feel like I don't remember a lot with the scenes with Jared Leto. I remember him doing a good job, and I'm not a Jared Leto hater at all. Like I think I've seen movies where he does a good job. Suicide Squad I feel like gave him a really bad rap. Um, mm-hmm. He was he was great in Requiem for a Dream. Um, but uh, I just I don't like I wasn't the whole thing like he was he was trying to make replicants that could mate and people were afraid that that would like cause the end of the human race or something. Well, he found out he found out that Tyrell Corp somehow managed to do it and he has not been able to reverse engineer it. And and the reason why they could never do it was because Rachel was one of a kind. She was the only one of her kind. So it's right. not like and, – and in the backstory for this, Wallace had absorbed the Tyrell Corp. Because right. Yeah. Because it was basically like how, you know, how – um like yeah. Disney buying Fox, I guess. I don't know what, what, what metaphor to use, but – what happened in the backstory was there was a great blackout and because of the blackout, there was like a famine, like they were having trouble growing crops and the Wallace company created artificial crops. And that just made them like the biggest company on earth. And then because of that, he was able to buy the Tyrell Corp, 
but because Rachel was the only one of her kind, it's not like he simply had access to her blueprints. He had no idea she even existed. Right. Yeah, and she's she's dead now, so he can't he can't and that is her body's like gone, so he can't like examine her and stuff. Hello? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. I thought I thought I lost everybody. But um yeah, and it's like he kinda so his goal is just kind of trying to find I guess find the child and stuff like that but i don't i don't even really remember what happens to him at the end of they just i i know and i know this movie like just like the first one it, ha it has a lot of unanswered questions that's kind of the theme of both movies you kind of have to like fill in the blanks yourself but yeah, yeah it's like i i remember him like not being defeated it's kind of unresolved but like yeah no the only the only villain that's defeated is love he gets out scot-free I see. I see what you did. I, I see what you did there, Trevor. The only villain that's defeated is love. <laughs> yep, <laughs> that's that's the girl with like the dark ponytail. Yeah. The, yeah. 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 Um. But yeah, no. I same kind of similar thing with Mad Max Fury Road. Like this movie is very strikingly beautiful with its you know cinematography and its des production design. It's just yeah. It's just if you if you're not interested in like science fiction movies you got to just watch it for its aesthetic alone i mean like you could you could frame like screenshots of this movie and like put it in an art gallery and like people who don't know what blade runner is would probably stop and look at it yeah um mm -hmm. but yeah no i i would say like i really like it i i, I really need to rewatch it it's one of those movies just like the first one where like you really got to like watch it multiple times to like get the mythology and get what, what they were like the subliminal messages going on. Mm -hmm. Like, I think, I think that's really why like the original one has endured the test of time, but yeah, um, yeah no, it's, it's really good. If not better than the first one. No, no, that's good. That's good. Mm -hmm. I, I am, I am, my heart is warm that we uh, are more or less on the same page with this. So let's move on to the final film of the night. Um, now Donnie and I get to gush. I'm, I'm sure Trevor and Michael will too, but um, Dr. Sleep. Mm. Um, Going to be uh, me in about 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> such a dad joke. So, so, and I'll try not to be long-winded with the setup here. Dr. Sleep. You've got, you've got 45 minutes. Yeah, yes. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, true, I guess. Um, anyway, Doctor Sleep is a movie that, and, and I was excited for it, like from when um, they announced the director, like Mike Flanagan. He did The Haunting of Hill House. He did uh, Ouija Origin of Evil, which, which the first Ouija movie is is not Fucking good. Stupid. No, no, but but I'm gonna take a wild guess that you haven't seen Origin of Evil, have you, Donnie? Nope. It is, it actually, like, people that absolutely hated the first film love that film. Like, it is an improvement. Like, it, it's a prequel that, like, was just able to, honestly, it made, it makes the first film bearable in hindsight, in a way, because it, it kind of, like, does callbacks to it. The point is, he, he made a sequel to a movie everybody hated, but he actually made it work. So that, that's a success. That's an achievement. Um, and... So, you know, I was excited when he was cast in. And then Ewan McGregor, 
I feel like, I mean, other than like Star Wars prequel memes, like I feel like we do not appreciate Ewan McGregor enough. Like he's wonderful in Big Fish and so many other films. Like he has never been the issue with any movie he's been in. Even if the movie isn't that good, it's never his fault. And right. I don't know. I feel like we all could have done a, we've all could have done a, a little bit better, like appreciating him more, but was, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> you fucked up and you owe him a written apology. <laughs> but so, and then I saw the trailer to this movie and the trailer was, it was pretty solid. Like, I'm like, okay, that's, that's pretty cool because, because I wasn't counting on them making a visual sequel to Stanley Kubrick's the shining. And that was like going to be a huge, that was a big debate that they kept asking Mike Flanagan is, you know, are you just going to do Stephen King's Dr. Sleep, but are you going to make it so since it's still produced by Warner brothers, are you going to make it so it's still a sequel to the shining movie? Neither. I'm both. (laughs) Yes. It literally, no, he he did. Stephen King didn't want him to. He, he, he literally, yeah, he, he had to convince Stephen King. No, he literally did the meme that Donnie says. Like he literally gets did neither. I'm both. Um, but so because because to anybody else listening, Stephen King fucking hates Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Yeah. Because um, it it took so many liberties. Yeah, yeah. it took so many. Li- but I mean, it is very much an exercise of the auteur's theory. Um, it is a lot of artistic exercises. And but Stephen King and I, I love I love watching Stephen King interviews. But he said I found the film because his film still had some hope in it. It still had some warmth. And he goes, but Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. I found it to be as cold as the ice and snow around the Overlook Hotel. And also, he thought Shelley Duvall in the in the original film is one of the most misogynistic movie characters ever to be shown on film. Cause he's like, she's literally in that movie just to be frightened and scream and terrified. And, and I guess Stanley Kubrick's counterpoint to that is like, you know, you did write her character in your novel to, I guess, stand up for herself more and like tell Jack Nicholson's character to piss off. But it's like, you know, my counterpoint would be why is she willing to tell him to fuck off all these other times but she's never able to tell him to fuck off once and for all. Like, why is she, Why does she stay with him? Why is she still with him? So at least, you know, and from Stanley Kubrick's point of view, at least my version of her, at least Shelley Duvall's portrayal is more consistent in a way. Right, right. And it's, 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 it was very fascinating yet unfortunate to see these two artists that everybody loves fundamentally disagree with each other. Like, it's just wild, but... So Mike Flanagan had to reconcile their artistic relationship. He had to make a film that honored, you know, the mind of Stephen King, but also respected the world that, you know, Stanley Kubrick had built visually. And he nails it. Like, I think this movie fucks, like, as far as I'm concerned. Um, And this film was so much better than it had any right being because not to be pessimistic when I say this, but I, th- I can't help but think of all the film bros online that are always bitching that everything is a sequel, prequel, reboot, remake. There's no original ideas left. So when you pitch the very idea of a sequel to The Shining like 30, 40 years later, like that's kind of a lame idea. Like that could be an idea that crashes and burns bad, but like it doesn't. 
And I think this movie this movie came out a month before The Rise of Skywalker. And the last But let me say though, this movie came out a month before The Rise of Skywalker. The last 45 minutes of this film is fan service that's actually done correctly and appropriately. Mm -hmm. And it's not cheap. It's not lame. And I mean, shit, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the same thing I did with 2049 where I, I could just gush over and on and on and on. So once again, if it pleases the court, I'm just going to, I'm just going to interject here and there to, to add a, another thought or so. But Donnie, you love this film as much as I do. I believe you go ahead. Yeah, I absolutely agree. This movie fucks. Not only does it fuck, I got the fuck right before seeing it for the first time. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, like when this movie was announced, I was like, oh, cool. A, a sequel to The Shining. That's cool, I guess. I didn't really have like I didn't think it was going to do bad. I didn't think it was going to be bad. I was just like, neat. Um, I didn't necessarily have any strong desire to go see it. I went and saw it because to be blunt, a girl I was hooking up with at the time really loves The Shining and really wanted to go see it, so I was like, okay, sure, why not? And it was fucking awesome. Um, and, I mean, I rewatched that. I, I watched the director's cut earlier this week. Um, the director's cut is about a half hour longer, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. In my opinion, the director's cut is no better or no worse than the theatrical cut. I felt like any additions were you could take it or leave it. Um, I barely even noticed the the differences personally. Um, so it really just comes down to, do you feel like watching a two and a half hour movie or a three hour movie when it comes to which one you want to watch? Um, I think they're both equally great. But that being said, I mean, this movie managed to reconcile the differences between Stephen Kane's book and Stanley Kubrick's movie, which in and of itself is a fucking achievement. Like the fact that it managed to literally go neither on both when, it, when in, in regards to the question of are you a sequel to the book or the movie, like that was not only ballsy, but like the fact that you managed to pull it off is fucking awesome. Um, it's just, there's so many moments in this movie. Like it's, it's, this is probably one of the best thrillers I've seen in a long time. And there's just so many moments in this movie that just really like, make your skin crawl. Like there's one scene in particular that still just makes me squirm in my seat when, when they capture that, that boy from the baseball game and they torture him and kill him. That scene still makes me fucking uncomfortable every time. Yeah. Um, like they, they like when, they, when was the last time you saw a movie where like a child is taken and you see them brutally attacked? Yeah. And the, that's the thing. It's, without it cutting away. And that's the thing. He's attacked so fucking brutally and those screams. Oh my God. But it's not gory. Right. Like you right. see, you see some blood on their hands, but that's it. Like it's and nowhere... you see blood on his face. Right. Yeah. But that's it. And it's nowhere near as gory as like so many other horror movies that come out in the last like 15, 20 years, but it's mm. so much more uncomfortable for so many different reasons. It's a hard movie to watch, but that scene, in a way, was necessary to make you hate the villains even more. Like, you had to understand, right. like, if you weren't convinced by now, these are, like, the motherfuckest of motherfuckers. Yeah. Like, yeah. they're more evil than Pennywise. <laughs> um, 
yeah, this movie's just so fucking awesome, and it's when it comes to Stephen King adaptations, his, his adaptations of Stephen King's works are so hit and miss, and that's just because I feel like a lot of directors don't really get the source material, and it's all. I think it's also because a lot of Stephen King, like Stephen King, is best when he's like very much inside of a character's head. Like so, so many of Stephen King's stories are so internal, and that's hard to translate to a movie. And I feel like a lot of directors don't take that into account when when they try to ad, uh, adapt a Stephen King novel. Um, but the guy who did this movie, he did his fucking homework, and I mean it. It just pays off so well. Um, I mean, but he's it's, a He's a fan too. He he had been reading the book since he was a kid. Yeah, like I mean, I can, I have nothing bad to say about this movie at all. Um, and that that scene when they're at, at the end when they go back to the hotel, and the bartender is that Jack Nicholson lookalike. Holy fucking shit! That like when I saw that in theaters, I almost jumped out of my seat because that scene was just so. Like it, it's just so 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 much tension in that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's funny. You know who plays the Jack Nicholson lookalike? It's who? so funny. The, the the little boy Elliot from ET. Really? Yeah. Because oh. he was he was also in the Haunting of Hill House and Haunting of Bly Manor, which Mike Flanagan made. Huh. Yeah. He, and the original Danny is. A ran- he's a random like uh he's a random dude at like the baseball game. Yeah. 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 And he goes, yeah. Boy, I sure hope nothing bad happens to this kid. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean that scene when when Rose like is trying to get into Abra's head and Abra's like, huh, surprise, motherfucker, and she gets into Rose's head. Yowch. Yeah, that's, I mean, that scene's fucking awesome. Just degloves her. Um, yeah. What I love so much about that scene is that <clears throat> scene only happens like one third into the movie. Yeah. And in in any other horror movie, in any other thriller movie, like the villain would be some unstoppable, untouchable badass, and all hope would be lost until the very end, at least, at best. But like, mm-hmm. like only like I don't know, thirty percent into the movie, like it's just like. Abra fucks her up so bad. Yeah. And I just realized, you know, like, even the villain can get and, their ass kicked. And all, all of her bodies keep warning her, like, you know, she's a kid, but be careful. Yeah. And I think nope. what that also does is that also goes, like, I had no idea. Like, I didn't read the book. I had no idea what was going to happen. So, like, once Abra, like, I guess stands up to her and messes her up that soon into the movie, that told me, that said to me, like, Anything can happen. Like this movie can go in any direction. Like, right, right. Yeah, she she evolved into Cud Dabra. Yeah. Like, like, <laughs> I always kind of thought that too. That's I, you know, it's you know, it's weird. I heard, uh, like, I looked up some like just trivia on this movie before we talked about it. Apparently, in the book, there's a scene where, as an infant, she she fucking predicts nine eleven before it happens. Oh, I don't I don't get I don't get how that works. But as an infant, she somehow like predicted it before it happened. She she built the two towers with some mega blocks and threw a paper airplane at it. Yep, I wouldn't doubt it. That that is the one thing that's kind of like eh, about this movie, and I guess the the Shining 
as well is like it's kind of uh vague just how the quote-unquote shine works amongst each different individual in terms of like what their abilities are right there, there, there's some consistency but there kind of isn't at the same time it's a little weird but it's well they get into like different types yeah like uh, yeah like the one girl they recruit andy pushers and pushers. seers seers yeah and then i think the, i think the crow is able to mute others powers but also like the the mental battle between like Rose the Hat and Abra, like but the whole like rooms and shit, mm-hmm. like the visual mm-hmm. of the rooms, that's also very similar to Dreamcatcher because the one guy that's I forget his character's name, the one guy that's psychic and he he locks all of his memories like in his mind and like visually in the book and even in the movie, like it looks like he's in like a library or something. That's kind of something that Stephen King has like done multiple times. Yeah, his kind mm-hmm. of vision of like being inside someone's head. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's like I said, a lot of Stephen King, he, he he's best when he's writing something that's like very internal. Um, yeah. And that that's, I, I feel like that's why a lot of his film, adapt, a lot of film adaptations of his works are very hit and miss just because a lot of directors either have a hard time adapting that to a, a movie or they just don't bother to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, a lot of Stephen King's stories are very personal and yeah. like based on things that happen in his life. Yeah, which you mentioned, Dreamcatcher. I remember when the book Dreamcatcher came out. My stepdad like it was like one of the few books my stepdad sat and read that didn't come out from like some conservative talking head. Um, <laughs> and like he sat and read that book and praised it, and it was like the greatest book ever. And then the movie came out and he was all jacked up for the movie. And then like years later, Stephen King was like, yeah, I wrote that book when I was like high on painkillers. I don't really like it that much. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it also, it, it's also a little too similar to it. It's almost like kind of like a remake of it. Isn't it basically it with aliens? Yeah. Well, yeah, the creatures are basically like Pennywise yeah. and like, they even like have like the whole group of kids that are friends and stuff like that. Hmm. But uh, anyway, Dr. Sleep, I got nothing bad to say about this movie. I fucking love this movie. Um, I recommend buy it on Blu-ray. Michael, you're a huge Stephen King fan. You go ahead. Um, Yeah, I am a big Stephen King fan. I always have been since I was a kid. I will say I'm not the diehard Stephen King fan. I haven't read all of his books or anything. I have read some. I've read a lot of his short stories, and I've read some of his novels and novellas. <laughs> Can we all just agree that the Dark Tower fucking gives fans the middle finger with that last book, in terms of the ending? See, well, see, I will say, like, I I have avoided like Dark Tower spoilers just because I always say to myself, one day I'm going to sit down and read these, so I actually don't know what happens in the Dark Tower. Oh, well, then I won't say anything else. <laughs> I just I just know like there's the Gunslinger and like the crimson king and apparently randall flags in it and it like connects to all of his books yeah that's all i really that's and all they I never know. made a movie <laughs> yeah yeah and then apparently the movie's dog shit but um but um no as far as other things like my favorite book of all time is it i like on and off read it for a year and it's amazing and it's super fucking long it's like over a thousand pages but um Doctor Sleep, like it's just it like like you were saying, Donnie, it's very hard to fathom even this like movie or even the book 
because Stephen King made a book for it too, like that this exists, like making a sequel to The Shining. Like that's, that's like, I'm trying to think of a comparison, but like, it's it's just like taking a, a, a very popular standalone story and like many years later making a sequel. It's like, is it really necessary? Did it need to happen? But I mean, yeah, like Mike Flanagan is a very talented director. I think he's one of, I mean, I guess he's a little past up and coming now, but like, I don't think he gets the appreciation that he deserves. Mm-hmm. Cause I mean, cause I mean, sadly, Dr. Sleep did bomb, which is unfortunate, but, um, uh, yeah, that means it, that means it was too good. <laughs> yeah. 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 Some movies are just too good for everybody. Um, but yeah, no, he's a very talented horror director. I don't know if you guys ever saw his horror movie Oculus. Like that movie will like yeah. that movie will fuck with you. Like and the that movie like there is no like happiness in that movie at all. <laughs> which which that's the main reason why I've avoided that movie because his other movies are more hopeful and and have a warmth to them. And and apparently that movie does not. <laughs> and I will well the thing is I will say like it has that family aspect like it's about like a brother and sister like you feel the love between them and like the struggles they went through it's just but the ending is very sad yeah but anyways on to Doctor Sleep so yeah the whole like infamy of you know Stephen King and Stanley Kubrick clashing like that is really hard to do like Mike Flanagan he felt like you know he had to appeal to. Stephen King and the book fans, but he also had to appeal to people that were fans of the movie because a lot of people see The Shining as like one of the greatest movies ever made, and rightfully so. I love the original Shining. I've watched it multiple times. I think it's a very like atmospheric like masterpiece. I mean, I love Stanley Kubrick just as much as anybody else does. Um, but. And, and I was thinking, too, it, when we were saying, like, how we mashed them together, one of the craziest things, I haven't read Dr. Sleep, but I know some stuff in the book. You know, like, the whole, like, Blake said, like, the whole finale to Dr. Sleep is kind of like a fan service because they go back to the Overlook Hotel and, like, mm-hmm. they kind of recreate some of the shots and you see, like, a lot of the ghosts from the hotel. Mm-hmm. The crazy thing is the finale in the book is very different because the in the book, The Shining, the Overlook Hotel blows up. There is no Overlook Hotel anymore. So, like, in the book, the finale, they just go to where, like, the Overlook Hotel was. And, like, it's kind of... I think most of the finale is just, like, outside in the book. Yeah. Because they're just, like, up on the hill that where it was at in the mountains. But, yeah, like, the the I feel like the movie had, like, the advantage of, well, the hotel still exists, so we can do all this crazy shit. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, and even McGregor's great as Danny Torrance. I mean, and there was a lot of twists and turns I didn't think of, like, just like how much, like, you know, the shine, like the events of The Shining, like, ruined his life. And, like, I remember watching in the beginning, like, when he's with that prostitute and, like, I think oh, she, God. she ODs and, like, her daughter's there. Like, you just feel so, like, you just feel like so uncomfortable in your own skin watching that scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that's what that movie really nails. Like, yeah, like the scene with like the kid being killed by the, the psychic vampire people. It just, it gets, it gets under your skin. But like, 
I never see that stuff as like it's not being exploitive to be exploitive. It's to it's to make it feel real because in the real world, terrible things like that do happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's where like I've always felt like Stephen King like really hits home. Like a lot of his books, like really horrible things happen, but he doesn't do it to shock people. He does it so you know you connect to it on a personal level. Right. You know, it, it, for some people that it may hit home more than others. But um, yeah, and I just uh, um, trying to think what to say. Yeah, I, I haven't watched it since I went to theaters. Um, I'm gonna have to rewatch it. But no, it's it's a great movie. It's a great Stephen King adaptation. You know, Mike Flanagan is an. He's even said that he's an avid fan of Stephen King ever since he was a kid. He's already adapted a couple other ones, like he did uh, Gerald's Game on. Netflix, and I think he did a short film that was one of Stephen King's short stories. And he's so. doing he's his next. He's doing another one. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what which one he's doing next. I'll have, to, I'll have to look it up. You keep talking, and I'll I'll look it up. But yeah, like I I'm super excited if he does. Like I would love for him to just make Stephen King books into movies. Like if he wants to do that, be my fucking guest. But um, he's gonna make he's gonna make a buddy comedy that just shows what um, <laughs> what Andy Dufresne and Red did when they hung out on the boat. <laughs> yeah, they they fucking <laughs> they fucking no, they're they like fucking. they're like they're like Forrest Gump and Lieutenant Dan. They just start shrimping and become millionaires. Oh, is that what they call it? Shrimping. <laughs> <laughs> is, that what, is that what the kids call it these days? Shrimping. Yeah. But um, no, like this this movie's great. I would give it an A. Um, it, I don't know. It's just yeah, it's great. I, it just I do. I think it's as good as The Shining. Uh, no, I, I guess not. But it's mm-hmm. one of those things. The Shining has been able to like permeate in people's minds for decades, and it's just it's one of those movies that's inspired so many people. It's very hard to top a movie like that. Mm-hmm. But as far as making a sequel, like yeah, it definitely pulled it off, and I hope, I hope a lot of Shining fa- OG fans like this movie. I mean, as far as I know, it got good reviews. It just, it just didn't do well at the box office. Yeah, no, it, 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 it did get good reviews, um, and a lot of people. I mean, one of the one of my favorite guys to follow on Twitter who wrote for Birth Movies Death, um, Scott Wampler. He was. He, he basically said the same thing. This movie had no right working as well as it did, and it pulled it off. And some there was one review. I don't know if it was for IndieWire or Collider. One review called it the best Stephen King adaptation since The Shawshank Redemption. Um, I'm not 100% sure on that one. I think personally I would still give that to Hearts in Atlantis, which is a very forgotten movie. And I mean, the 2017 it I think is up there for me. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, the the, the 20 the first part one of the new it was was great, but um, shame about part two. Yeah, I mean, part two just it it, it was just missing something. It it what, fumbled it. I mean, it's part two. I don't think part two is that bad. I think it's decent. And. And the thing is, like, I think part two, yeah, I think part two is d- d- decent without getting into a, a separate review of the It movies. But, like, 
we all knew part two was going to be the lesser part anyway. So it's not like we have any right being shocked. Like yeah. everybody favored the good parts anyway. We did. We just, we just need to do what you guys said when you reviewed Shawshank and Green Mile. We just need to do a Stephen King episode. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. But um, cause, cause he had just has, you just, when you bring up Stephen King, you just really, for me, you just open a rabbit hole cause there's so much to talk about. If, but um, if that's an excuse to finally get everybody else to watch Hearts in Atlantis, I'm okay with that. I do, I do. I will say I, I have not watched that. I know some stuff about what happened in the book, but like mm-hmm. I don't know. Apparently, apparently, like you wouldn't notice. I don't think you'd notice, like because I mean the movie. I think it differs a little bit, but apparently the Hearts in Atlantis book has a big connection to the Dark Tower series. Oh apparently. yeah, that's, apparently that must have been totally absent. But um, any any final thought though, Mike? Before we move on, um, final thought. I was thinking. I just want to say two scenes that kind of stuck out to me in the movie. The first one, and I think, well, it's not. A, it's kind of like a couple scenes, but I don't know. And it's not even the main plot of the movie, but it's also the title. For some reason, the title and like the scenes revolving, like why is Danny called Doctor Sleep? That always kind of really hit me. I don't know why, but it's just that he's that he got that nickname because like he works at that nursing home or he visits the people in the nursing home and like with his powers, like he gives like elderly people like comfort before they die because like he can see like their their memories and their thoughts and stuff like that. Yeah. And he has that. Isn't Isn't it partially derived from the fact his nickname already was Doc as well? Yeah, 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 yeah. His nickname was Doc from um, uh, uh, Bugs Bunny. <laughs> yeah, and like the the character's name, uh, what's his name? Oh, uh, I think his name's Dick, Dick something. But um, yeah, and and that was another thing too. Like the way they incorporated uh, Dick is because in the Shining book, like he survived, like he saved like Danny and his mom. Mm-hmm. And like drove them home, and like the scenes that in the movie, like where he's talking to like Dick's uh, ghost in the book, like he's actually alive. He's just there. Yeah, I, I thought that was a really clever way of like redoing those scenes and not like even when him. he's even when he's in a like grown adult. Yeah, I think I think oh. I think I think Dick's still alive and he's adult, but definitely like the scenes when he's a kid, like. Yeah, like in, yeah. In, in the book, like he's actually just talking to him because Dick didn't die. Like Jack, yeah, yeah. Jack Torrance doesn't kill anybody in the book; he just tries to. Yeah. But the movie was like, you all, you got to kill someone to like, you know, be shocking or whatever. But right. um, but like, but the other scene is when um Danny and his one friend, the one guy I can't remember his name, it's that guy he befriends. They like decide to like take out the psychics and stuff, and mm-hmm. like. They have like their uh, sniper rifles. Like that scene is such a nail biter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It, almost felt, it almost felt especially like with a, how it closes. Yeah. Especially it almost feels like a finale to the movie, but there's still like a ton of movie left. And like when his friend died, like that was so upsetting. Yeah. That, like, that really hits you. Yeah. I, yeah. and I, I just think it's powerful how, you know, the shining was written while, um, Stephen King was having trouble with substance abuse and addiction, and then Doctor Sleep was created when he was recovering. Um, and you see that in this movie, and how I mean, it's it's you would think you would think there. I mean, there's a lot at stake. 
and you would think there'd be a lot more going on, but simply like the big tension between, you know, Ewan McGregor facing his dad at the bar is that his dad's trying to convince him to take a, a drink and break his sobriety that he's that he's built for the last eight years. And it's just, I mean, th it, it can be life and death for so many other people. And, and you know, uh, addiction is a very real thing, but like it really makes you feel that like, everything about that character is at stake while he's sitting down at that bar. And that well, yeah, in the parallel, like his father, like was an alcoholic and like yeah. he, he took a drink when he was at that bar, like he gave yeah. in his, if he even takes one sip, his entire morality and character is compromised. And yeah. I, I just think it's so well done. And, and I just love how it goes. In. And I think this is just exclusively the director's cut. It goes into when, you know, he's trying to tell his dad the story of when his mom, his mom, his wife died. Um, he was able to see flies crawling all over her face. He called them death flies and, and just how upsetting that was. But also he said the last time he used his powers to physically fix anything or alter anything was when he changed the color of his eyes because after they left the hotel and moved to Florida, they never wanted to see snow again. And his mom couldn't look him in the face anymore because when she looked at him, she saw Jack Torrance's eyes. So, and, and there's a flashback early in the film where it shows him looking in the mirror as a kid and he just literally changes his eyes. And I, I don't know, it was just, I mean, that scene, that scene at the bar, I mean, it would have been amazing if they were able to get Jack Nicholson for that moment, but I mean, that probably would have been too tall in order. But I, I don't know. I just have to gush. He, yeah, he, he's been retired for years. Well, yeah. the thing too, like the villains themselves, like they are analogies for drug addicts. Yeah, like they're not like trying to take out over the world. They're not killing people to kill people. They're killing because they're addicted to that power, to that feeling. Yeah, that thing that keeps them alive for so long. Like they, like The Shining is basically a drug. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, but no, yeah, great movie, great sequel. Yeah, it's yeah, that's all I gotta say. Trevor. Oh, I still gotta go. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, I actually want to use something both Blake and Mike just talked about as a segue. So. Uh, one, I absolutely love the scene where he's talking to Lloyd, the bartender, uh, as he's called. Um, but I, when I was sitting down and rewatching this, I thought to myself, with as many like scenes that are a throwback to The Shining or involve characters from The Shining, it really amazes me that they were all like stand-ins. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't try to CGI anyone young. Um, they, they didn't try to get complete lookalikes. Yeah, they're all just actors that are somewhat reminiscent of who they're playing. Yeah. I, I like, thought the stand-in for Shelley Duvall was pretty legit, though. Yeah, she was. I thought she did well. I I thought honestly she looked the least like her character compared yeah. to the other the others. Yeah. Yeah. Like I thought I thought Dick looked like himself and uh Lloyd looked like Jack Nicholson. Mm -hmm. But uh, Shelley Duvall like the the 
the actress they have is like the stand-in for her. I thought she did really good with the character. Yeah. She doesn't look a thing like her, though. And they tried to make her look like her with the hair, and it just didn't work for me. Yeah. But um, I, I like, respect that in a way. That they didn't try to go fancy with it. Like, they simply had actors who were really good at, like, the facial uh, reactions and everything. Like, I, I read something like the guy that played... Um, Lloyd like watched hundreds of hours of Jack Nicholson and the original shining mm-hmm. to get it like just right for just those, that less than 10 minute scene. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I like, in a way I respect that, that they didn't try to like do it with special effects or anything. Yeah. Um, but moving on. Um, so this is another one where Blake, you actually had to do a little convincing to get me to watch it. I never actually saw this one in theaters and I'm glad I gave it a chance in retrospect. Um, and then this past weekend was my first time ever seeing the director's cut and Donnie, I know you said like, you know, you can leave it or take it the changes, Mm -hmm. but I think, I think the changes the director's cut make, and I, I picked up on almost, all of them when I reviewed them after the fact, I really do think they make all the difference. Like I love the chapter titles we have this time. Like, I think there's six of them in total. Yes. I just, I love those from like a a visual standpoint. I think they work really well to kind of divvy up a three hour long movie into nice little mini sections. Yeah. Um, the fact that we got so much more of his conversation with Lloyd and Blake, as you brought up, like we heard about how his mom died and everything. Like I could watch them talk all day, but uh, the part where the conversation moved to the bathroom, that was a little jarring. Mm -hmm. Like all of a sudden he's in a different outfit and it's very Kubrick esque, but I don't, it kind of got a little jarring at that point, but Things like that, seeing more of Abra's powers. Uh, like, I think everything the director's cut added had a purpose and, and worked to its advantage. It just allowed it um, to re- take deeper breaths. Right, right. And honestly, I, I can't speak for you guys, but it did not feel like three hours to me. Like, yeah. no, it doesn't drag, no. Right. The director's cut, like, I picked up on the differences but it didn't affect like the runtime for me, if that makes sense. Like I'm not sitting there looking at my watch, like, Oh Christ. Is, is <laughs> as far as like, as far as like me, like, you know, um, taking it in and uh-huh. watching it and then digesting it, it did not feel like three hours at all. But unfortunately no. it took me like over half a year to watch the director's cut because, because when I'm sorry, when when you have when you when you have a, a a child in the house and then a wife who is just not interested in this spectrum of the genre, like I had to I had to fit in what I could when I could, and it, right. it, it was a challenge. It was a challenge. Blake's been watching it in two minute bursts for the last three months. Yeah, I basically <laughs> really? have to wait, I have to wait until like eight o'clock when she goes down, and then I just I don't I don't want to tell my wife. All right, you need to piss off and get out of the living room. I got to watch Doctor Sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta watch Doctor Sleep, but but yeah, and and then also there's the nights where I would have been able to watch it, and I was just t- fucking tired. <laughs> like that's fair, because because like in that sense, three hours is still three hours. But no, as far as like taking it in, observing it, you know, no, it did not mm. feel like three hours. 
Um, Blake, I'm really surprised you didn't mention this at all, but uh, Rose the Hat, probably one of my favorite fucking villains in anything in recent years. I I'm so mad at myself that like I guess I was gushing so much that like, yeah. I missed something, but no, Rose the Hat is one of the best villains of the last ten years. Right. Like I can't think of much more with a more like well versed, well rounded out villain than her in this movie. Like you just you hate her so much, but at the same time the movie goes to show like where she's coming from with these things. Yeah. But there's there's no defending her actions at the end of the day. No, because um, walking into it, I was just like, why, why does the villain in Dr. Sleep look like she's going to a Stevie Nicks concert? <laughs> but, but then like, no, she's she's no, she she's awesome. She nails it. She she is one mean, cold bitch. <laughs> and I liked that. Um, well, I both like it and I hate it at the same time. What what's the what's the name of the other the girl that joins them? Uh, I don't know. Andy, that's right. Um I apparently in the book she isn't that young. Uh apparently her and Rose actually like become a thing. But um they kind of hint at that in a moment though. Yeah. I I like that she kind of became our insert for that group. Yeah. Like the new member that, so we can kind of see how that all works. But at the same time, they like completely forget about that. Like a post time skip. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, maybe there's not that much more to show, but like after the eight year jump, like she, she basically becomes fodder except for, you know, telling the one dude to kill himself. She's basically just she's basically used to introduce them, but then after right. that, like that's her purpose. She was just the introduction to them. But um, I guess like I wish the exposition was a little bit different for her then if they were just gonna do that. Cause the way it the way it stands, it it just feels like they, you know, put her up and then drop her off. Like she doesn't matter anymore. You, you and, felt like every time you were going to be around that band of people, it was going to be... It was going to be from her perspective. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And they do that a few times. Like when um, Grandpa Flick dies or whatever. Yeah. Like, like they honestly try to make you feel for this group in a weird way. Yeah. And it's, it's, the, it's the one big, tall, weird-looking guy from the first Men of Black. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, he was, in, uh, he was in Twin Peaks, wasn't he? He's in a lot of stuff. Yeah. I didn't Twin Peaks yet. But, um, yeah, like, I I loved how much of the movie is devoted to that group. Like, you don't see that with villains traditionally. No. Like, no. Argue, like I'd, arguably, like, you know, 40% of the movie is from their perspective, I would say. Well, I feel like it sets out to do, it, it sets out to avoid the issue that Donnie has with Terminator yeah. 2 Judgment Day, where it's like, it doesn't ever want you to be like, oh yeah, that's right, there are villains in this movie. Like, Right, does quite the opposite. Yeah. But, I, yeah, and I mean, going back, I, I already said this, Blake, when you were talking, but like, the, the brutal nature for when they're killing like kids, like I've never seen another horror movie, I think, where you actually like see, uh, maybe not directly, but 
in your mind you're you're seeing like children being like tortured and killed <clears throat> and they also they all they kind of do like a, a drew barrymore in the first scream because when you see jacob tremblay at this point like he's he's an established kid actor like you know he, right. he wasn't just like oh it's that one kid from that one movie like no he he had been in some stuff already by now and like mm -hmm. you see him in this and it's like oh is he gonna be in a more it's like oh no like they 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 baited you there right right and yeah the director's cut adds to that even more which is insane yeah we see him get stabbed a few more times <laughs> but uh yeah just the the brutal nature of them like going after people in this movie it's it's crazy and i can't recall another movie that does something quite like that yeah um moving on from that though there's a lot of visual things in this movie I absolutely love. There's a lot of scenes that stand out. There's a lot of times where Flanagan does a really good job of throwing it back to Kubrick. Like, he proves he can emulate Kubrick. Um, yeah. In fact, I think, like, only two shots in the entire movie were directly pulled from the original. I think, I, I think there may have even only been one shot. But... Well, it's... It's two angles. I, I looked it up. It's it's two shots from when they're going to the overlook. Mm -hmm. The the bird's eye view shots. Mm -hmm. Those are pulled from the opening of The Shining, and they colored them so it's nighttime, and they digitally added snow. Oh, okay. Those are the only two shots that came from the original movie. Mm -hmm. Everything else is like a really faithful recreation. Which blows me away. Like the scene where we see like Danny as a kid on the on the trike going mm -hmm. through the halls. Yeah. Like it blows me away how accurate that is. Um but in in terms of like what's new, there are so many scenes involving like Rose or Abra, like in their mental setting. Mm -hmm. That just do wild things with like camera angles I I, I can't recall seeing before. Like when, like when Rose like travels like in the atmosphere to go to Abra's house. Oh my God. Yeah. The scene where it's like on the left side, we have her and on the right side, we have the earth at like a horizontal perspective. Mm -hmm. Like I love Fires. that. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> like that entire sequence is great where she's like going into Abra's head and then Abra reverses the tables. Um, They're just but also, <laughs> yeah. Degloved. <laughs> um, just, just of of all things, she couldn't smash her hand. No, she had her hand get stuck in a fucking filing cabinet. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, and then of all things, she wakes back up and immediately falls off the top of the RV. Like, could it get much worse? Oh yeah, yeah. No, she, she definitely ruined De her fucking week. <laughs> Degloved her hand, falls off the roof. Um, but the other scene I'm thinking of that does something similar to that is, uh, I think it might have been new for the director's cut. I, I'm not sure, but when Abra is looking out the window and like the perspective of the inside of her room changes, like the gravity changes almost. Do you know what I'm talking about? That I think that was still theatrical. Okay, I couldn't remember for sure, but yeah, um, yeah, like any time the gravity of a room changes or something is like really cool. 
Um, and then Blake, we were both talking about a shot we loved earlier where it's just you and McGregor at the fucking uh, gas. Something about that shot, like yeah, it caught me too. Like, and that like, is you know, that I don't think that was in the theatrical. Um, me either. Unless I'm wrong there, but like, no, there's something about like the way like the neon light is mm-hmm. above his head and just the the almost retro pumping station. But no, I love that shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's funny. Like of the movies we've talked about this evening, I would say this one is the most faithful to what preceded it. Which yeah. is interesting because not one person from The Shining was involved with this. No, no, is nope. it creatively no. In fact, in fact, your your only kind of direct connection absolutely hates the Kubrick movie. So well, he no longer does now. Like that is another. Well, yeah. He Stanley Kubrick is on record saying that he loves this film and what Mike Flanagan did so much it made mm-hmm. him reconsider the original film. Right. So, um, but like, I, I don't know. I don't know what much more is there to say. Like Flanagan proves he can emulate what Kubrick did and reinvent it and make it his own. Like he, he's absolutely what I would want to be if I was a horror movie director. Like right. he's all about doing the seriousness and the scares and stuff, but it's also like, there's a sensitivity and tenderness to what he does. And mm-hmm. I respect that a lot. Right. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I was very pleasantly surprised by this and the director's cut even more so. Um, but yeah, that's about all I've got. No, I mean like when, when we're all vaxxed up, like we're having a slumber party and we're watching this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As, as, as long as my daughter doesn't interrupt me and like, what are y'all watching? Get the fuck upstairs! As long as, as long as your cat doesn't lightly meow and you fucking freak out on it. Yeah, I'm just kidding. I would never talk to my daughter that way. My cat, yes. Yeah. yeah. Like, all I, all I heard was, meow, and you're like, I, I just fucking gave you a treat. <laughs> father. It's like the whole asshole. Father, what am I? <laughs> <laughs> apparently you're my daughter's real dad um yep. but anyway well i thank you for that trevor i didn't want you to feel put on the spot like if if if, if you reach an ending point just don't be afraid to say it but um yeah yeah i mean i i would say like my final thoughts on this whole episode is i will i will never stop feeling sore about how we as a population failed both 2049 and Dr. Sleep. Like, those did not deserve to bomb at the box office like that. And it's just... The, Dr. Sleep should have been a Conjuring-level smash hit. Like, that should have done right. as well as, like, you know... I mean, when you look at the horror movies that actually did do well at the box office over the past, like, 15 years, I'm kind of pissed off. Um... No, but yeah. no, I, I thank you all for joining me tonight for that. Any any other thoughts, gentlemen? I uh, I can't wait for next week's Pluto Nash episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, the, colla- the collapse of Eddie Murphy's career. 
Only to come back with Dolomite. <laughs> yep. only, only to kill it again with Coming to America 2. I, we don't know yet. We, we don't, don't know. know. Oh, yeah, Fingers we do. Crossed. <laughs> I, I see the trailers for that movie, and I'm like, wow, this is dog shit. <laughs> I, wonder I, what, I, wonder what, I wonder what Arsenio's up to. <laughs> Probably at a wine and cheese party. If when, it, when I, if it I doesn't see, cross over with Black Panther, I'll be pissed. When I see Arsenio Hall say, the king pays no child support, I'm like, oh, okay, all right. All right. <laughs> but um, but anyway, um, I hope you all enjoyed listening in, everybody. Um, you can find this on YouTube tomorrow, as well as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and uh, Google. Uh, yeah, no, wait, we still do Coop. No, no, it's Pandora, right, Donnie? Pandora and for some reason, like Google took all of our episodes off for some reason and then put them back on. I, I, I don't know what the fuck. Too, go- I, don't, I don't know what the fuck. Too many Google hot pod- takes. Yeah, I don't know what the fuck Google Podcast is doing with themselves anymore. Okay, well, let's just be honest. If you don't do Apple or Spotify, you're probably not going to hear us anyway. <laughs> you're, pro- you're probably Amish. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that that is yes, that is correct. If if you don't have Apple or Spotify, you're Amish. You're probably not listening to this right now. Exactly. So um once again, thank you all for listening in. Uh this was a I'm glad we were able to do this. I'm your host, uh BBJ. You can find me online at Pukasasi, uh Donnie at Don John Laughs. Um, Trevor at Bumbus Columbus, <laughs> Jesus Christ, <laughs> and Michael at M. Whedon. Uh, Donnie, say the line. Take us out. Thank you. Fuck you. Good night. <laughs> ah, holiday get together. So many things to look forward to. Pass the squash. I'm trying to eat more vegetables. No, actually, squash is a fruit. It's a vegetable, like green beans. Well, beans are a legume. What are you, the vegetable police? Look, I'm just saying that just because... But to those who can always find the silver lining, give the gift of joy. Holiday scratchers from DC Lottery, like Peppermint Payout, Merry Money Multiplier, and Festive 500s, with over $1 million in total cash prizes. Just trying to be accurate around here. Please play responsibly. 